You are listening to the Magnetic Marketing Marketing Secret Gold Members Only Podcast. Welcome to the 19 Secrets of Exceptional Results Selling with Dan Kennedy. Before we begin, I want to briefly acquaint you with Dan's background, specific to selling. He has been a salesman literally his entire life with his first position immediately after high school graduation as a Central States account manager for a Los Angeles-based book publishing company. As a professional speaker, nearly one-third of his work has been in the sales training field, and last year, an estimated 30,000 of 100,000 people he addressed from a platform were sales professionals. Dan has developed and conducted seminars for sales forces ranging from ski-doo snowmobile to jet ski dealers to Sun Securities financial products and service representatives. Brookside Laboratories, soil analysis consultants selling to farm owners and Orange Systems Computer Software Services account executives and dozens and dozens of other business categories. Personally, last year, Dan sold over $1 million of his own products, and just about every single day, he is currently on a sales battlefield selling his services as a consultant, advertising copywriter, or infomercial producer in selling his products. In 1994, Dan's book, No BS Sales Success, The Ultimate No Holes Barred Kick Butt, Take No Prisoners, and Make Tons of Money book for sales professionals hit the bookstore shelves throughout the United States and Canada, where it has been a smashing success. He is also an editor of the No BS Marketing Letter, to which he insists every sales professional should subscribe. On these tapes, we're going to pick Dan's brain and discover his 19 most powerful, most profitable secrets for consistently achieving truly exceptional results in selling. The sales profession seems to be overrun with quitters. I mean, many companies have gigantic turnover rates in their sales forces. Now, I wonder if the answer to that is to hire only a certain type of person. Is there a personality type most likely to succeed in selling? And is predicting success that way valid? Should an individual determine whether or not to get into or stay in sales based on his personality type? Well, in his book, Learned Optimism, Martin Seligman talks at length about consulting with big insurance companies and dealing with their massive turnover problem, trying to plug the hole in the bottom of the bucket. And the industry wisdom has long been that nothing can be done about this. The new representative has some success working his warm market, friends, relatives, and neighbors. And when he runs out of those and has to start cold prospecting, the going gets much tougher, and he soon quits. Here's how the MetLife executive described it to the author. Every single day, even the best agent has quite a few people say no, usually a number of them right in a row. So it's easy for the average agent to get discouraged. Once they get discouraged, they take the nose harder and harder, it takes more and more effort for them to get up and make the next call. They put off making that next call. They spend more and more time fiddling around and doing things that keep them away from the telephone and off the road. Their production falls off, and they start to think about quitting. Now, the author's answer to all this was, as you suggested, to hire only optimists so that they would be much better equipped to withstand this process of getting no, 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 finally a yes, than no, 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 all over again. The insurance industry bit, and many companies use hiring tests designed in part to measure whether an individual is optimistic or pessimistic by nature. And all this is fine, I suppose, as a band-aid for the insurance business, 
but I wonder what happens when they use up all the natural optimists. And won't this experience gradually, insidiously, convert optimists to pessimists? Well, I believe in optimism, uh, in understanding the law of averages in selling, and in being able to withstand lots of refusal, but I've also taken a very different approach to the problem. Instead of saying, let's hire people who are immune to agony, I've said, let's change the entire marketing and sales process to replace the agony with a selling experience that is more pleasant for all parties concerned, salesperson and client. You see, the insurance industry is certainly not alone with this turnover problem, although I do believe the author's diagnosis of the reason for all the turnover is correct. I think the diagnosis is right, the prescription's wrong. Every direct sales business, every telemarketing office, every sales organization and industry has a turnover problem. But let's stick with the insurance industry as our working example. We can take the author's approach and find ways to hire only those people with extraordinary immune systems. The ability to withstand enormous amounts of refusal, rejection, frustration, pain, agony, and days, even weeks, without any success. In other words, we can hire only emotional super beings. Or we can continue with the industry's traditional approach of hiring anything that breathes, throwing them all out there, and largely making our living off their first 90 days productivity in their warm markets, knowing most will then quit. There we run a perpetual hiring machine and just learn to live with it. Or we can try my approach, changing the entire marketing and sales process so that there is little or no cold prospecting involved. And these salespeople have a lifetime selling experience of talking with and meeting with only prospects who are already predisposed to accepting the sales agent's proposition. Think for a minute about the enormous boom in personals ads. These days, major city daily newspapers have huge personal sections, as do the weekly entertainment newspapers and even some national magazines. Newspapers that wouldn't have carried these ads 10 years ago now have page after page after page of them. The old way of meeting people and obtaining dates was not unlike the insurance agent's experience of cold calling. You go to a bar and cold prospect and suffer enormous amounts of refusal. In that case, some refusal, some real rejection. You could talk to dozens and never click. Probably without understanding all the principles behind it, more and more people began rejecting that process and instead using, although they wouldn't know to call it this, lead generation advertising. They switched from an experience of repetitive failure to one of relatively easy success. Now instead of approaching 20 people cold in a bar, trying to find one you have something in common with to talk about, you can study 200 ads placed by people describing their preferences and interests and then call only those you have good reason to believe you can at least have a pleasant conversation with. Or you can place a descriptive ad describing your interests and preferences and let people who believe they can fill that bill seek you out. Now, I'm not trying to make a case that meeting through personals is perfect, flawless, or risk or frustration free. There are many other dynamics at work there that we're not discussing. But just think about and lift out the core concept. What if we could fix it so that the insurance agent never called anyone unless at least it was known that that person had some current expressed interest in a solution the agent had to offer? Or what if we could set it up so people with such a need and interest sought out the agent and ask him for his time, advice, and assistance?
Can you give us an actual real-life example? Sure. I was consulting with a company that sold a certain type of industrial product. It was important to almost any and every factory, but purchased mostly when a state or a county or a city passed some new or updated laws about a certain kind of pollution control. The company ran typical general image ads in all the appropriate magazines, and the reps sat around on the phone cold calling. Their experience was days and days and days of cold calling with lousy results, being screened and blocked, not getting to the right person, playing phone tag, being told not interested, hung up on, and so on. Then every once in an agonizing while, getting through to the right person, getting him interested, then FedExing him literature, then getting him back on the phone, and then maybe making a sale. Actually, at that point, the closing rate was about one for three. And this is a big ticket sale. But the task of getting there was like climbing up a mountain made of broken glass and rusty nails bucked naked. So here's what we did. We switched all the ads to lead generation ads. Now, a lead generation ad has two components identical to personals. They state who should respond and who should not. You know, divorced male seeks single or divorced female, age 22 to 35, no kids, non-smoker, who is desired and who is not. So these ads now read something like this. A timely, critically important free offer only for CEOs or vice presidents of engineering, industrial companies in areas where new or updated pollution control regulations have just passed or are under discussion. If you are the CEO or VP of engineering of a manufacturing company with one or more factories, at least $10 million a year in size, located in an area affected by new or pending XYZ type pollution control regulation, it is extremely important that you get and read this new special report, 17 Facts Industrial Managers Must Know About XYZ Type Pollution Control. This report features legal precedent case implementation, cost control, and productivity protection information, case histories, and details the 10 most commonly made costly errors in responding to these regulations. Failure to consider this little-known, thoroughly researched information could cost your company hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you fit the above description, this report is yours free of charge, no obligation on request. Just call and the phone number, or fax your business card to, and the report will be sent to you on a 100% confidential, complimentary basis. Please do not respond unless regulatory activity in your area is imminent and you are the decision maker in your organization who must cope with it. Now, here's what happened with this strategy. Over a three-month period of time, the 20 sales reps' life experience changed from 100% outbound cold telephone prospecting and selling to, on the average, 70% of their time taking calls from people who answered the ad, were sent the report, read the report, and then called to ask specific questions of a representative. The closing rate on these calls was also about one out of three. But the company's total sales jumped by nearly 30% because of the obvious dramatic improvement in the productivity of the salespeople. And of equal importance, the rep's entire experience of selling was transformed for the better. Now, this same strategy is explained in my book, by the way, How to Solve All Your Advertising, Marketing, and Sales Problems, Fast and Forever. And if you do not have a copy and would like one, just call my office. So, assume that we have this insurance agent. 
who every Monday must make cold calls all day long just to get a few appointments for the rest of the week. He may make 10, 20, even 30 calls without getting to even one yes. Maybe he blanks for the entire day. So instead, Monday morning, he gets his cup of coffee, he sits down at his desk, and promptly at 9.01 a.m., his phone starts ringing. Each inbound caller, one after the other, has received and read his special report and is now calling to ask a few specific questions. How many of these conversations are going to lead easily to appointments? Well, darn near all of them should. What's the best lead generation ad you've ever seen? I'm glad you asked that one because I brought an ad to this session. It perfectly demonstrates the analogy between lead generation ads and personals ads because it is a huge, full-page personals ad written and once used by my friend Gary Halbert. And you could use this as a model for writing an ad to attract a certain type of client, a certain type of investor, a certain type of anybody. A financial planner could advertise for his utopian client this way, and so on. So even though it's long, I'm going to read the whole ad. Here we go. The headline says, Generous Creative Businessman Wants to Find a Hot Sexy Woman with a Good Sense of Humor. Are you a soft, sexy, exciting lady who would like to have a little taste of part-time paradise? If so, read on. My name is Gary, and I am looking for a very special woman who would like to share a few small but exciting adventures with me and who wants to enjoy a part-time slice of the good life. Are you that woman? Maybe, maybe not. The first thing it depends on is me. You see, if I'm not your kind of guy, then what I have to offer may not be your idea of how life should be lived. So let's start with me. Here's what my life is like. First of all, I'm an early riser. I usually get up around 6 a.m. and eat a piece of fruit and drink a cup of coffee, and then on most days by 6.30 a.m., I'm jogging around Lake Hollywood. How far I run depends on how good I feel. It's never less than three miles and seldom more than seven. When I'm finished, I get into my car and drive to a place I call the House of Pain, actually the sign outside says Vince's Gym, where a Stone Age sadist who masquerades as a fitness instructor forces me to use dumbbells, barbells, and other fiendish contraptions in ways in which my body was not designed. Whatever. After about an hour of this, I travel to yet another establishment where I give my tired, hurting body a chance to recover while I rest on a UVA suntan bed and listen to soothing music on a pair of stereo headphones. By the time I am finished, it is approximately 9.45 a.m., and what I do next is go home, shower, change into fresh clothes, and eat a light breakfast. Finally, after all this, I go to work. And boy, do I ever work. I love what I do for a living, and I must confess I am truly a workaholic. For example, right now I am attempting to put together the financial and promotional packages for ten different feature films. I'm writing two books, I'm collaborating on a screenplay, and I am attending to the details of two businesses that I own personally, and also to the business details of several corporate and personal clients whose names are household words. It is quite a workload. And what do I do after I stop working? What is my big reward for all this running and grunting and pumping iron and stretching and straining and writing and thinking and solving and creating and caring and so on? Nothing. That's what. Nada. Zip. Not doodly squat. No Miller time. No drugs. No sex. No rock and roll. Not even a little wine and some quiet classical music. Why? The answer is simple. You see, for the last three and a half months, I have been spending my evenings and weekends on a marathon of nonstop sulking. And why have I been sulking? Good question. 
Once again, the answer is simple. You see, up until three and a half months ago, my Miller time was terrific. It was terrific because there was a very beautiful, very special lady in my life, and we were in a relationship that I thought would last forever. But that relationship has ended. It has ended stupidly, tragically, and for insane reasons, totally beyond the ability of any human to control. But such is life. And what's done is done, and three and a half months' worth of sulking is more than enough for anyone, and now it is time for me to climb up out of my sulk and find myself another special woman. So why write an ad? Why do I have to advertise for a woman? Am I some kind of a geek with two heads and bad breath? No, I am not. I'm a reasonably attractive, maybe even semi-handsome, Caucasian male in his mid-forties with a sparkling personality, except when I'm sulking, a keen wit, a steady hand, and a clear eye. I've got a good hand, excuse me, I've got a good tan, dark brown hair, and a short, neatly trimmed, dark brown beard with a couple of interesting spots of gray. I'm of average size, not short, not tall, not fat, not skinny. I'm in excellent health, I'm not hurting for money, and I can look any mater d in the country right square in the eye without flinching. So once again, why do I have to advertise to get a woman? Well, actually, I don't. I've been married twice, I've had a few other serious relationships, and of course my share of short-term romances. I've enjoyed the company of a few really outstanding ladies, and I want to do so again. But you know what else? I've also met many ladies who were not so outstanding. In fact, I've met more than a few women who, although they had great exteriors, were on the inside flat-out bummers. Want some examples? You do? Okay, you ask for it. Try these out for size. Zelda the Princess. Zelda is a 26-year-old Jewish lady who waltzed into my office and immediately informed me that she wanted me to write an ad for her and that she wanted to go to bed with me. Well, on some days, I'm a pushover. She got what she wanted. Unfortunately, it didn't happen in bed. And what happened in bed was unfortunate also. You see, Zelda's idea of good sex is brutality. She wants a man who will slap her around, degrade and humiliate her, and quite literally bounce her off the walls. Sorry, that's not for me. Then there's Sherry the Tragic. Sherry was a secretary and a go-go dancer. Great body, a very pretty face, and a good sense of humor. Unfortunately, she was also a walking accident looking for a place to happen. She was always in court on charges relating to neglecting her four-year-old daughter, and her ex-boyfriend was a mafia hitman who wanted her back and was trying to find her. We had a very brief affair. Karen, the would-be prostitute, a gorgeous woman who, after our affair got going, confessed to me that she wanted to live her life as a hooker. Then she informed me that she wanted me to be her first John and that I should start paying her. When I refused, she decided I would be her lord and master, and she would have sex with other men and make them pay and then give the money to me. This was also a very brief affair. Claudia the actress, sensational looks, a real traffic stopper. I used her in a, full, in a few full-page ads, and I created a perfume promotion based around her. We started hanging out with each other, and I was the envy of all men who saw us together, except me. I wasn't envious of me at all. Claudia had a terminal case of tunnel vision. The only thing she could focus on whatsoever for more than 10 seconds was her precious career. She was deadly dull. I could go on and on. All of these examples, except for the names, are true. They have not been made up. In fact, they have been toned down. And so far, I haven't even described what I consider the worst category of women at all. These are women who, in my opinion, might actually be clinically crazy. You want to know how I can tell? It's easy.
You see, these are all of the women who do not have any of the drawbacks that turn me off and who, for some inexplicable reason, are not interested in me. Can you imagine that? Anyway, the idea of this ad is simply to put a little science into the search and to eliminate me having to spend a lot of time with a woman only to discover that I am not interested in her or else, much worse, that she is not interested in me. What do I want in a woman? Well, I've got a pretty good idea, but I am flexible. However, I have a very clear idea of what I don't want, and it is here that I am not flexible at all. So let's start with that. Here then are seven things Gary does not want from a woman. Number one, death or disease. This is my number one no-no. Listen, I've never had sex with a gay man, a bisexual man, a transsexual man, or any kind of man at all. I hardly ever go near Santa Monica Boulevard, and when I do, the only place I ever stop is Barney's Beanery. And even then, I never eat quiche. In other words, I'm straight. Also, I'm not a hemophiliac. I've never had a blood transfusion. I'm not a junkie and never stick needles into my body. I'm not promiscuous. I don't mess around with prostitutes, and I've never been close to Africa or Haiti. What this means, of course, is that with any kind of luck at all, I do not have AIDS. Also, to my knowledge, I do not have any other type of dreadful communicable disease. If you can't say the same, please do not respond to this ad. Number two, drug dramas. Do you like to drink a little or get a little high once in a while so you can loosen up and party? You do? Good. That means you and I can have some fun. But please read that first sentence again. See where it says a little and every once in a while. Those words are important to me. Therefore, if your idea of a little and every once in a while is to get drunk or stoned every day, if the way you like to use cocaine is by freebasing or injecting it, if you gulp down Valium or Quaaludes by the fistful, if you use PCP or heroin in any way, shape, or form, then I must once again ask you to please not answer this ad. Number three, desperate dilemmas. Are you sleeping in your car because your rent is six months overdue? Is your ex-husband a hatchet murderer who is trying to track you down and who swears to mutilate any man who so much as looks at you? Are you in desperate need of fast money because your poor old mother needs a kidney transplant? I'm sorry, I really am, but I'm just an ordinary, everyday, nice guy. I'm not Superman or even Lee Iacocca. I'm very compassionate and very understanding, but I have recently retired from trying to save the world. Therefore, I'm not qualified to save your life. Number four, marriage. I've been married twice, and both times it spoiled a great romance. I don't want to get married again, and I don't want to live with you either. You see, at this point in my life, I don't want to own a woman. I just want to enjoy one. It would be nice if you decide to answer this ad if you already have some sort of life on your own. I don't want to be your everything. I would much rather be that special somebody who you see two or three times a week and who makes you feel good. Number five, I don't want a sexual swinger. Do you spend your evenings attending orgies at the A-frame? Do you have a lifetime membership at Plato's? And some other things we can't say on this tape, so I'll skip the next couple paragraphs. Um, could that be true? I don't know. But if it is, he is, in my opinion, a man to be pitied, not to be envied. I'd take quality over quantity any day. Number six, I don't want a sexual prude. I bet by now you think I'm repressed. I bet you think... The hot throb of lust does not live in my loins. I bet you think that if you and Kelly LeBrock showed up at my door with a suitcase full of excitement from trashy lingerie, parentheses, they're located at 402 North La Cienega, 
and suggested that we have a menage a trois, that I would toss you both out on your ear and report you to Jerry Falwell. You are wrong. Fear not, I may be cautious, but I'm not crazy. Hark unto me. Listen, just because I'm not into freebasing orgies and nonstop promiscuity doesn't mean I'm dead. It's true that I don't want a woman who has been sleeping with everything in pants. However, on the other hand, if you are a 35-year-old virgin who thinks foreplay should be a half hour of begging, you may rest assured our stars were simply not meant to cross. Number seven, I don't want a woman who can't stand prosperity. Don't laugh. I lost the love of my life because things got too good. Some people are into the struggle and not the reward. I'm into both. As you already know, I like to work, but work without reward is senseless. It seems to me that many women and men just insist on filling up their lives with a lot of needless trauma. Well, anyway, that's my laundry list of what I don't want, and in fact, what I can't handle. Now comes the hard part. I really feel awkward about saying what I do want. I'm afraid if I get too explicit, it will seem like I'm an insensitive clod ordering something from a Chinese menu. On the other hand, if I don't set down some guidelines, I'm afraid this ad will be answered by many women with whom I would not be at all compatible. So please give me a break. I'm not nearly as definite about what I am about to write as it will appear in print. Remember, what I'm about to write is not etched in stone. Anyway, here I go. My idea of a perfect woman is someone who is intelligent and healthy with a good sense of humor and someone who will take my breath away when I see her in a string bikini. As far as age is concerned, if you are somewhere between 25 and 35, that would be just fine, and if you are a little younger or a little older, that is probably no big deal. I like women who take care of themselves. If you have a slender, healthy body, a reasonably slim waist, rather generous breasts, God, that sounds redneck, doesn't it? A very pretty face and a good sense of humor, then quite frankly, you sound like heaven to me. So much for specifications. And now, if after all this you are still interested, what can you expect from me? Well, the first word in the headline of this ad is generous, and I mean just that. However, generous does not mean chump. It also doesn't mean that I want to pay for play. That's ridiculous. Any man in L.A. who wants to pay doesn't have to write an ad. All he has to do is answer one. The ads are all over, even in the yellow pages. Here's what I mean by generous. I love to buy presents for women I like and take them to movies and plays, and I love to send flowers and buy them jewelry and clothes, and if I really get involved with a woman, I rather enjoy helping to support her and helping to elevate her lifestyle. Also, I give great vacation. I love to travel for long weekends to Acapulco, Hawaii, Fort Lauderdale, the Bahamas, and so on. I only fly first class, and I try to always stay in the best hotels and eat in the best restaurants. Does any of this sound good to you? I hope so. This is an honest ad. Every word is true, and although I've made a modest attempt to make it entertaining, you should also know that I am sincere. Are you leery about answering a personals ad? I don't blame you. I sure am. Before I decided to write this ad, I started reading other personals ads, and they scare the hell out of me. I'm always afraid they are being written by sick people or real losers, and sometimes by people who are downright dangerous. I mean, have you read those ads? They go like this. Psychotic white woman wants to be uh, beep by 12 Cuban truck drivers and a boa constrictor while husband watches and snivels. A couple of other examples I can't read either, and so on. I'm not like that. Really, I'm not. I promise. I'm a reasonably normal, healthy male who would like to add a little excitement and romance to his life with a reasonably normal, healthy female. 
If you are at all interested or even curious, please write and tell me about yourself and how to get in touch with you, and also please send a recent photo. Who knows, maybe we'll click and maybe we won't. But at the very least, you won't be writing to some sick psychotic, and maybe, just maybe, it'll all turn out great. Just write to Gary, and then it gives his address. In my opinion, without trying to inflate Gary's already inflated ego, you have just heard one of the best lead generation ads ever written and used on this planet. And if you listen to it closely, setting entertainment aside, you do have a model of how to advertise for who you want and who you don't. That's great. Let's change uh, subjects here. Everybody talks about persistence in selling. Valid? Well, in his book, uh, Tough Selling for Tough Times, my friend Murray Raffel quotes an executive from the Philadelphia Life Insurance Company who says when he hears salespeople complain about the economy, the weather, the competition, whatever, he answers, well, it's nothing the 2,000 interviews won't cure. Well, I'll admit this isn't my favorite answer to a slump or any kind of selling problem, but it is a truthful answer. I mean, sometimes you just have to go to work. Years ago, a friend of mine was the wonder boy in a sales force. In 90 days, he broken all sorts of records, lit up the world. He could do no wrong. He went on a Hawaiian vacation the company gave him, and when he came back, he made 52 consecutive presentations and struck out 52 times. It's unbelievable. I said to him, well, what are you going to do? He said, 53. Sometimes speeding up the pace of failing can get you to success faster. Now, if you don't yet have a proven highly effective presentation, then you have to exhibit persistence by testing one variable after another, one change after another, until you get it to click. If you do have a proven winner, then you stick with it. So sure, persistence, uh, I call it positive stubbornness, is important. On the other hand, you've got to be careful about this. There is a difference between positive stubbornness and stupid stubbornness. Stupid stubbornness is either insisting that you haven't changed anything, but results have changed, and that's very rarely true. Or it's keeping on doing the same unsuccessful things over and over and over, purely out of stubbornness, yet expecting different results. So you want to balance persistence with intelligence and with analysis. Last year I had a client tell me, look, I'm running the same ad, I'm sending the same sales letters, I'm saying the same things on the phone, I haven't changed a thing, but my results have gone from great to terrible. Well, it took me nearly an hour of asking questions, poking, probing, going back over the same ground until he realized and admitted one change he had made. Change it back, I said, and he did, and his results promptly rebounded. You see, cause and effect rules. If the effect changes, there has to be a cause that can be found and fixed. Now, I noticed that one of your articles, you said... Uh Salespeople are notorious for knowing too much about their product, products and not enough about their customers. What do you mean by that? Well, I think it's always interesting to ask business owners and salespeople how much they really know about their customers. Who are they? What kinds of incomes, jobs, hobbies do they have? What makes them tick? What you hope to find is a commonality or two that can somehow help your marketing. In his book, Tough Selling for Tough Times, Murray talks about doing a survey of the customers of his own store and discovering that 75% of the customers all listen to the same single radio station. 
There were 12 radio stations in the area, so picking one to advertise on had been virtually impossible without this clue. In one business-to-business scenario, I was consulting with a company, and they were advertising heavily in one of four trade journals, but my survey of their customers revealed it to be the least read of the four. I like to try and determine who your best customers are, where you got them, and then go there to get more of the same. And I'll tell you something else. Very few businesses have the resources to advertise and market to everybody who could use their product or service. And even fewer salespeople have the time or the resources to contact every possible prospect when everybody is a possible prospect. It's just not going to happen. So you need to deliberately choose who you'll ignore and who you'll focus on. One of the best ways to do that is by determining who your best customers or clients are now. Let, let that be your guide. You know, most salespeople are overloaded with product knowledge, and they keep getting more and more. Yeah, of course you need to know your product, but not to the point that that's all you know. Product knowledge alone isn't going to make you successful. People knowledge will. Specifically, knowing your prospects so intimately that when you communicate with them, you hit nothing but raw nerves and hot buttons, and they say to themselves, has this guy been hiding under my bed or in my office? This guy really understands what I'm going through. No, I think uh, more salespeople dislike prospecting than any other aspect of selling. Why? Well, cold prospecting is a pretty unpleasant way to make a living. I've knocked on my share of doors. I've gone business to business cold calling, and I've done even cold telephone soliciting. And I quickly concluded in each instance that it was a pretty stupid way to invest time. Glenn Turner, a vague memory to most these days, but a very famous and controversial multimillionaire of the 1970s, with one of his companies called Dare to Be Great. Glenn came up selling sewing machines door-to-door in the Deep South. He talked about going house-to-house and seeing no peddler signs posted on the front porch posts. So he'd go around back, climb over the fences, and knock on the back door. So when challenged, he could say, hey, what sign? Well, that's a tough way to make a living. But in various cosmetically different ways, that's how most salespeople exist. They try to sneak, connive, even lie their way past receptionists and secretaries, for example. And it's the same as going to the back door so you can claim you didn't see the sign. Well, I'm totally, wholeheartedly opposed to cold prospecting. Let me tell you a story. I'm home alone one weekday. I'm on the phone with a client when somebody starts banging on my front door like a crazy person, a pest. After all, the options of who's going to be at your front door uninvited on a weekday afternoon are pretty limited, and this sounded like a Jehovah's Witness on steroids. So I ignored him, confident that like most pests, if ignored, he'd go away, which he did only long enough to go all the way around to the rear of my property, climb over a wall, get through the pool area to the rear patio doors directly behind me, and start banging on those doors. Long story short, the reason he's there, my entire backyard is in flames. We've just had our 15th straight day of 115 degree days, and everything but the water in the pool is on fire. And this good Samaritan, who thinks I'm an idiot, which is arguable, is there for that suddenly he goes from being the most annoying pest to the most welcome guest, because he's there at just the right time with just the right message. In this case, I'll work the hose, you call 911. From pest 
to welcome guests. Well, the reason that prospecting is so arduous and unproductive is that so much time is spent being perceived as an annoying pest, not as a welcome guest. Now, if you honestly don't mind being viewed as a pest and can go through life that way without becoming neurotic, then there are lots of sales jobs out there, and you don't need any sophisticated techniques. My preference is to get into the welcome guest category as quickly as possible. Now, unfortunately, we can't arrive very often at precisely the right time with the right message, so we have to use other strategies to still be perceived as the welcome guest. So what's the basic difference between pest and guest? The difference is invitation. The entire selling experience changes when you are there by invitation. Now that hopefully tells you something very important, and very big, and very intriguing about what you need to do to transform your selling career. You have to figure out a way to cause prospects to seek you out, call you up, and invite you to come and sell to them. Stop arriving in person or by phone uninvited. And I suggest setting everything else aside until you figure out how to make this happen in your selling situation. As we're recording this program, the movie The Shadow is hot. The Shadow has the power to cloud men's minds. Uh, what mental powers are important to the exceptional salesperson? Well, instead of clouding other men's minds, the top performer in selling has to learn how to strictly control his own mind. So let's look at the issues of focus and concentration. You know, for the sales pro seeking exceptional results, as it is for those seeking the same results in many other fields, the ability to totally control one's own mind, set aside all extraneous thoughts and worries, and concentrate exclusively on the task at hand is remarkably important. Everybody has problems. Everybody has distractions. And the temptation to let those kinds of things drift in and out of your mind is enormous. I've long been able to compartmentalize things in my mind, put each thing in a compartment of its own, and close the doors shut on all the compartments except the one I need to focus all my energies on at the moment. I believe this discipline accounts for a lot of my personal success in selling. You know, people who work at regular jobs freely wallow in all their personal, family, financial, health, and relationship troubles to the detriment of their job performance, but they get their paychecks anyway. When I step to the stage to sell to a group, I do not have a guaranteed paycheck, and I cannot afford to give even a fleeting thought to anything but selling. If you've ever worked in an office or had a group of employees around you, then you know that most of the continuing conversation has to do with everything happening in everybody's personal lives. Who has marriage problems, family problems, car problems, kid problems? The soap opera dominates. And if an employee has some kind of personal problem, he or she can dramatically suck up the aspirin, wander around in a daze, wring hands, sit at the desk, head in hands, getting nothing much done, and everybody understands. That's the world of the paycheck earner. Television reinforces that this is the way life is supposed to be. Sitcoms and dramas alike depict people in the work environment mostly dealing with discussing and sharing their personal and family problems, not doing work. But that's not my world, and it's not your world either, if you aspire to exceptional results in selling. I went in front of a group of people the other day and sold $56,000 of my books and cassettes in 60 minutes. 
The night before, I'd been informed that my mother's condition had worsened and she'd been readmitted to the hospital. I'm wrestling with a long, nagging tax problem, supposedly in good faith negotiation with the IRS, but getting lied to and stabbed in the back, and I'm questioning the competence of my tax advisor. And I could go on. I've got a plate full of problems. But as it gets within an hour of my presentation, I have to lock all that stuff away in its compartments. I have to clear my mind of all that, clear my body of all the related tension and fatigue, and focus. Now, we're not alone in this need to focus. The professional athlete has to be able to do this. Those who don't, won't, or can't may have satisfactory careers, but they never achieve superstar status. Uh, tonight, the night that I'm writing this script, is the final game in the seven-game series of the Knicks and the Rockets. They've proven to be evenly matched, equally physical, well-coached teams. Houston's Elijah Wan may have a bit more physical strength and youth than Patrick Ewing, but Ewing has more experience in playoff savvy. What tonight will come down to is this. Which team, which coach, which key players are more clearly and totally focused on the task at hand? versus which are even fleetingly distracted by pain, fatigue, the crowd, the media, personal problems, whatever. Can all this be broken down into steps A1, 2, and 3 strategy? Yeah, I think so. Uh, step one is, I think, the acceptance of this responsibility, the acceptance of the fact that you are different than many in having this responsibility. And not everyone in your life is going to understand this, You'll probably be criticized for it. Some may try to make you feel guilty or insensitive or inhuman for it. And yes, you're going to pay a price for it. It's all easier said than done. Many people who say they want to be exceptional performers are not really willing to do this thing that is so necessary. You are different. You have a very different opportunity than most, and you have a very different performance requirement than most. Uh, step two was described by Dr. Maxwell Maltz, the author of Psycho-Cybernetics, as clearing the calculator. He drew the analogy at the time when the handheld portable calculator was brand new and that before you could use the calculator to solve a particular problem, you had to first clear it of all previous calculations, data, and problems. Now, with the little calculator, that's easy. You just push the clear button. Regrettably, we don't have a nifty little clear button behind our ears. But as Dr. Maltz pointed out, you may be able to benefit from the repetitively used visualization of clearing the calculator. Seeing the screen cluttered with your concerns and worries, pushing a button behind your ear, and instantly seeing the screen clear. Personally, I sometimes use this little visualization, as well as several others that make the same point, to remind myself of the necessity of clearing my mind. I also go through a little focusing exercise right before every presentation, every selling situation. For the group presentations, I find a quiet place backstage in an empty meeting room in a hallway and pace. I pace, counting the number of steps to match the number of units of product I intend to sell in that particular situation. I give myself a little pep talk, recalling past successes and statistics, and I sell myself on being able to achieve the goal I've set for that presentation. I bounce up and down on the balls of my feet, do a little exercise to get tension out of the base of my neck, and I ask for energy, confidence, power, control, and concentration. Now, all of the details of what I do are not especially important because I do not think you can simply copy what I or what anybody else does. I don't think there is a regimen that works for everybody. I think you have to find your own way, 
put together your own collection of mental and physical things that combined clear your mind of extraneous thoughts so you can focus on the selling task at hand. Now that I've said all of that, I suppose it sounds silly to some people, maybe psychobabblish or mysticism, and I can understand that. I can hear the grizzled sales veteran saying, crap, I don't need to do any of that stuff. If you sell, you sell, and that's it. Well, maybe, but I can assure you that the better a job I do at this clearing of the mind, the better my results are in each selling presentation. You see, selling requires a very high level of mental alertness, remembering every most effective nuance of your presentation, using the best possible voice inflections and body language, sensing and interpreting and responding to the prospects or audience's reactions. I don't believe you could perform at that level while simultaneously letting distracting thoughts flit in and out of your mind any more than you can achieve peak performance as a mountain climber with a big sack full of rocks, noisy tin cans, and melting ice tied to and dangling from one of your ankles. Step three is then immersing yourself into the performance, into the selling with total concentration. I know one sales pro who gets so into the selling process, he is actually oblivious to anything and everything going on around him. He was in a meeting selling to two executives in an office building in Burbank, California this year when an earthquake aftershock hit, severe enough that the other people in that office building quickly rushed out. But he never noticed it, and he so completely held the attention of the two executives that although they later said they had felt it, they gave it only a brief thought, and they ignored it, too. When the rest of the building employees filed back in about a half an hour later, they found the three still at work in the conference room. You've got to revel in the art of the sale. You have to be totally involved in the making of the sale. This means, by the way, that if you are selling something you are not really confident of, sold on yourself, interested in, and sincerely enthusiastic about, or selling in an environment that you're glad to be a part of, you will not be able to achieve peak performance. And frankly, you should probably think about changing company, product, or clientele. I was asked the other day if I didn't get burnt out with my speaking and platform selling. Well, there are certainly days when I wake up and do not automatically feel like getting it together, getting to the event, and delivering a presentation. And there are certainly days when I think I'd rather be lying on a beach, enjoying lunch in a clubhouse at the racetrack, or doing any number of other things. But all that gets cleared away, and then when I get into the actual selling, believe me, I'm totally 100% there. I'm not on the beach or at the track or anywhere else. What about neuro-linguistic programming? Now, that's hot right now, isn't it? Largely thanks to the Tony Robbins infomercials that my client, the Guffey Ranker Corporation, has produced and aired for the past several years, selling over $80 million of Tony's personal power tapes, NLP, Neuro-linguistic programming has become a huge fad, and the best place to read about it is in Tony's first book, Unlimited Power. But I have to tell you, this is not the brand new technology it's made out to be. One of the all-time best, bluntest books ever published on closing sales, titled The Closers, from 1980, talks about mirroring one of the key NLP techniques. By the way, that book, The Closers, is very hard to find but worth hunting for. I think it's out of print, so libraries and used bookstores are your best bets. Anyway, there's some of the NLP technique that, frankly, for me, is more distracting than helpful in selling, and some of it I'm not even sure I agree with at all, but the information on mirroring is sound. 
I think you have to be careful of falling prey to each new fad or idea that comes along, each presenting itself as a miracle breakthrough for salespeople. Keep in mind that in many cases, it's just as Cavett Roberts says, old wine in a new bottle. My own observation is that very few sales professionals have achieved such mastery of the fundamentals that they need to move on to esoteric techniques. I'm told that Vince Lombardi started each season at the first team meeting by holding up a football and saying, ladies and gentlemen, this is a football. This is how he would launch into a pitch for concentration on the fundamentals. You know, we all want the magic pill. And that's worth remembering when you're selling, but something to watch out for in your own behavior, because there isn't one. A few years ago in football, a new kind of offense called run and shoot was seen by some as the magic pill that could elevate a dog team from the basement to the playoffs. Detroit bought into it more than any other team, but four or five used it a lot, and none of them got to the big show. Lombardi would have whipped them all with blocking and tackling, blocking and tackling. Several years ago, when Chuck Daly and Brendan Sir were still the coaches at the NBA Detroit Pistons, I sat in on a practice. Now, this is a practice with top pros. They played basketball in high school, college, and in the pros all their lives. And I heard Chuck Daly yelling over and over again, follow your shot, follow your shot. Now, that's a basketball fundamental. You don't take a shot and then stand there waiting to see if it goes in or not. Depending on your team's game plan, you either follow the shot in order to get the ball on the rebound if it doesn't go in, or you move into position for defense, but you don't just stand there. But this year, every time I watched an NBA playoff game, I saw guys forgetting this fundamental and costing their teams points. And again, it's my observation that very few sales professionals have achieved such mastery of the fundamentals that they need to look for new, more sophisticated, esoteric ideas or fads for improving their performance. Now, what about uh, the role of positive thinking in selling? I have a favorite story, a, a groaner about the ultimate positive thinker, uh, a dumb rookie sales guy in a life insurance office. They sick him on the toughest prospect of all, a business owner in town who has chewed up and spit out every other insurance salesman. So the dumb guy goes to see the tough prospect, not knowing the history, thinking positive as he rolls towards slaughter, while all the other reps hang out in the office laughing. But the laughter stops when our hero comes back with a signed million-dollar policy in hand. It's incredible. It's amazing. But there's one little base missed. The manager says, where's the urine specimen? So back our hero goes to get the urine sample, again with all the reps hanging around the office laughing at him behind his back. And again, the laughter stops when he returns, dragging a five-quart pail, sloshing over the sides. As long as I had to go all the way back over there, says our positive-thinking hero, I sold him a group policy for the employees, too. Well, I told you it was a groaner. In 1994, the great Dr. Norman Vincent Peale passed away after a long, very productive, contributive life that earned him international respect and the love and admiration of millions of people. Mrs. Peel still occasionally comes and speaks briefly at the large public seminar events where I speak with Zig Ziglar, Peter Lowe, and others, and the crowds demonstrate their enormous affection for the Peels without exception. I share their respect and do not want that misunderstood when I also say that I find that people's confusion about positive thinking leads to a lot of frustration, failure, and unhappiness. These are the people who want to jump down the throat of anybody 
who acknowledges any flaw in a plan has, hey, don't talk negative. Well, let me tell you about the positive power of negative preparation. Any smart strategist, a military tactician, a professional coach, a negotiation specialist will tell you that acknowledging and planning for problems and obstacles and having an overall positive attitude is possible and practical. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. I don't know of a more positive, enthusiastic, vibrant guy than my speaking colleague, Charlie Tremendous Jones. Nicknamed because whenever anybody asks him how things are, Charlie says, tremendous. But Charlie also says, plan on your plan going wrong so you have another plan. That's my plan. Well, is he a negative thinker? Can you believe in Murphy's Law and still be a positive thinker? Here's how the sales strategist and tactician answers that. The true positive thinker acknowledges potential and existing negative circumstances and reactions and engineers a plan to overcome them in order to achieve positive results. You see, there's a path to a sale, and along the path there are obstacles, rocks, fallen trees, quicksand, the logical reasons, the fears and doubts, the emotional responses that may prevent a person from buying. Now, you can just charge ahead on that path and rely on your wits and your status as a positive thinker to get to the pot of gold at the end. But my preference is to get a scouting report and then prepare. If there's a possibility of a fallen tree being there, it'll be great to have my pocket-sized chainsaw with me. So in structuring a sales presentation, I want to honestly understand and acknowledge the arguable and the actual flaws in our product or service so I can devise the best possible answers and can emphasize the best possible offsetting or compensating advantages. After all, everything in life involves trade-off. There is no perfect person, no perfect place, no perfect food, no perfect product, no perfect proposition, at least none created by humans. So in planning a sales presentation, I want to anticipate the questions, doubts, fears, objections, and stalls these particular prospects may raise, so I'm competently and confidently prepared to respond. Now, that doesn't mean you get all worked up over an anticipated knockdown, drag-out battle. If things go well, you want to be able to graciously accept them. But you should have less anxiety, not more, by being prepared for every possible eventuality. Once that's done, once you are so prepared, I then advocate setting it all aside and mentally practicing the perfect presentation. For my speaking engagements, I have what I call my million-dollar sales presentation. It's called that because in 1993 and again in 1994, it has sold over a million dollars of my products, specifically this year, my magnetic marketing system. In developing this presentation, I determined that the main reasons someone who listened would not buy are, number one, they think it's not for them, for their business. Number two, they think my product is just a book of letters because I show letters in an example. Number three, they think it's too complicated. Number four, they think it's too expensive. And number five, they don't believe the guarantee. So during the presentation, I directly raise and respond to every one of those possible reasons not to buy. This isn't new. The very first group sales presentation I ever used in this field back in 1975 ended with shtick on the blackboard that said, 
the only three reasons people don't join. I would write each reason on the blackboard, then answer it, including humor, to diminish its importance, and as I killed each one, I would boldly cross it out on the blackboard. And after I killed the last one, I erased them all. I don't think you should ever fear their reasons for not buying. And never play ostrich. If I stick my head in the sand, I won't see it. If I close my eyes real tight, the boogeyman will go away. Never let your ego tell you there's no good reason to say no to your offer. Use their probable objections as building blocks, not as stumbling blocks. Now, do you have any special thoughts about selling in tough times? Well, if you're going to achieve high levels of success in selling, you've got to be able to get positive results under negative circumstances. Just about every sales field cyclically overpopulates during boom times and thins out during tough times. The consistent, secure, high performer can get results regardless of circumstances. And I find that much of this is purely attitudinal. Many salespeople eagerly look for circumstantial excuses for poor results. Then if they happen to have a good day, week, or month, great. But if they don't, they've set up their excuse safety net. Unfortunately, by focusing thought on the excuses, they virtually preclude experiencing successful results. Anytime you offer your subconscious system a choice of goals, one positive, one negative, the negative one is perversely most likely to dominate. The exceptional achiever correctly ignores things like talk of recession, distractions like Desert Storm, Waco, OJ, or whatever comes next, his own ego, and other emotions, and difficult selling environments. He ignores all of that and has consistent confidence in his story, his selling skills, and his batting average. I've often sold in negative conditions of one sort or another. The only time I can think of when I was unable to prevail was in a seminar, a group sales presentation about 50 miles from Cape Canaveral the night of the Challenger disaster. People showed up physically, but just were not there mentally or emotionally. After about 20 minutes that felt like slogging through a swamp, I gave up, gave everybody a gift, and sent them home. But other than that, no set of circumstances has ever derailed me. I began my selling career calling on badly neglected accounts in an abandoned territory where I was met with open hostility about half the time. I sold to people who started out our meetings by calling me and the company I represented everything imaginable. Very recently, I had a successful sales event in a city with a prolonged 35% unemployment rate. I believe that through the force of will, personality, confidence, and concentration, you can triumph over virtually any and all circumstances. And the biggest negative selling circumstances, incidentally, occur in or are magnified in our own minds. Which brings us to rejection versus refusal. If you feel rejection, you cannot achieve exceptional results in selling. I believe the number one reason for mediocre performance and failure in selling is ego, because a person with a falsely inflated, forcibly pumped up, and therefore fragile ego just cannot stand being told no. When somebody says no to such a person, he or she takes it very personally. And as a result, selling becomes very painful, because even under the best of circumstances, there are more no's than yeses, and we will naturally, instinctively, subconsciously do anything to avoid pain. If you're this type of a person, you'll settle for maybes to avoid pain. 
You'll hide in paperwork to avoid pain. You'll avoid the tough prospects. You'll become a procrastinator and an avoider. My friend and colleague, Bill Brooks, helps sales-oriented companies' managers deal with this in hiring with an assessment device that goes far beyond optimism. It measures not only selling aptitudes but also selling attitudes, and it determines can he sell, will he sell, and will he sell here with these products, this clientele, in this environment. You see, there are lots of people who certainly can sell but won't, or can and will but won't in a particular situation. A person can, for example, have all the skills, know-how, and even natural talent to sell, but still fail simply by avoiding opportunities to sell. If this person cannot resolve the emotional issues causing avoider behavior, no amount of sales skill or skills training will help this person. So rejection or refusal is a big issue. When you're told that you've presented a dumb idea, do you translate that to being called or perceived as a dumb person? Can you debate the merits and demerits of your idea without viewing its acceptance or rejection as personal triumph or defeat? Right now, there are two types of selling situations where I get lots and lots of refusal. In one, I represent clients, projects, products, and ideas to the infomercial industry in situations where a big corporate parent is desired, and maybe 99 out of 100 such pitches go nowhere. I get told no just about daily. Last year, one company said no to me over 60 times. But this year, they've said yes twice, and just one of those may be worth a mid to high five figures in royalties. The other situation, I sell my books and cassettes from the stage. At big events, where I'm usually the last of six to as many as ten speakers, working with a tired audience, I'll typically average 15 to $20 per person, which, by the way, in our industry is very good. And in an hour, I may sell $25,000 to as much as $75,000 of my products, which certainly sounds very good. But here's the other side. 900 of 1,000 people are listening to me at my very best for an hour, then turning their backs on me, saying no, and walking away. If I take any of that personally, I'm dead in the water. And by the way, at about a dozen really big events last year and this year, where I'm the very last speaker, usually after a final famous person, the crowd has been waiting all day to hear that other person, like President Bush or Coach Holtz. And as I take the stage and start talking, thousands of people are walking out. Because it is so late in the day, all during my presentation, people are bailing out. If there are 10,000 people at the event, I may get to speak to 3,000 of them. 7,000 reject me, but I cannot think about that. I have to be focused on selling to those that stay. The most powerful edge you can give yourself in selling is control over your own emotional responses to refusal. When someone fails to accept an offer that I've presented, it very rarely has anything to do with me as a person, so it just doesn't warrant an emotional response. In person-to-person -person selling, I think you also have to expect a certain amount of resistance and refusal only because people feel they appear to be easy or foolish or impulsive or unsophisticated if they say yes too quickly. People say no, much like you and I automatically say, no thanks, I'm just looking, when approached by a sales clerk in a store. Smart clerks learn to ignore this knee-jerk response, and smart sales professionals learn to ignore the first few no's. 
Are there some fields where your methods just don't work, don't apply, or aren't appropriate? Uh, what about selling business to business? Now, for example, uh, to professional purchasing agents or to top executives? I'm often asked, actually challenged, about most of my methods working in to consumer sales and marketing, but being somehow inappropriate for business to business marketing. But actually, more than half of my life is involved with business-to-business, -business, not consumer marketing, and my suggestions apply here equally well. For starters, we really ought to get the entire term business-to-business -business, out of our minds, because businesses do not buy anything. People inside businesses buy things, and people are people. The talented actor Wesley Snipes was asked, do you consider yourself an actor or a black actor? He answered, I guess I'm a black actor. When I get out of bed naked in the morning, I'm black first. Then I go to work where I'm an actor. Well, when your prospect, whether he's a CEO, an executive, an HRD professional, an engineer, a purchasing agent, when he gets out of bed naked in the morning, he's a person, a human being, a big skin bag of emotions first. Then when he goes to work, he's also a CEO or a purchasing agent or whatever. Consider the professional purchasing agent or mid-level executive or department manager, the individual who may authorize purchases to a certain level. When the rubber meets the road, there are only two factors that will finalize his decision and inspire him to action for or against your proposition. Personal gain or fear of personal loss. Note the word personal. Sure, you and he need to cover all the other ground, the savings to the company, the increased productivity, the faster service, the response time. But ultimately, this individual is putting some percentage of his own career capital on the line. If he is switching to you from some other vendor, he's risking, personally. If he's doing something new and different, he's risking, personally. So you must address personal issues. In the game category, this individual must see the opportunity of increasing his career capital, of getting favorable recognition from his superiors, of getting approval from peers, of making his own job easier, of being freed from some worry or aggravation. But all of this is rarely enough. There's also the fear of loss category. What might this person lose personally by not acting? For example, if the bandwagon effect guarantees that some key competitors will soon be using your product. Your product will be getting lots of publicity. Your product will be seen at major exhibitions. The buyer who procrastinates will lose a timing advantage, lose the prestige of being one of the first in his industry to implement, lose introductory discounts and incentives. Right now, I'm involved in marketing very sophisticated, innovative software to certain programmers and the company's salespeople have made me aware of the huge importance in this market of not getting behind the innovation curve, of not showing up at a meeting and being unable to discuss the latest, the newest, the hottest. This fear is important to the advertising, marketing, and selling of this product. You may have noticed a term I've used several times, career capital. I believe I've coined this term. It means roughly the same thing as political capital. It's said that each president has a store of political capital, which he either uses wisely or squanders. For example, early in this administration, most political experts argued that Clinton squandered a lot of his political capital on the gays in the military issue, eventually winding up with an embarrassing failure, stonewalled by the military and Congress, roughed up by Sam Nunn, and finally going back on a campaign promise to the gays, 
and appearing to much of the American public to be weakened by the whole process. Well, like politicians, I think every executive, every manager, everyone in a corporate bureaucratic hierarchy has career capital. If he's able to use it, that is, invest it wisely, it multiplies and as dividends produces increased influence, promotions, raises, and unshakable security. If he squanders it, it diminishes. When such a person says yes to you, he is investing some of his career capital. He may not enunciate it as such to you or even to himself consciously, but he nevertheless senses that this is what's going on. When you understand all this, you see that the sale of even the most sophisticated, complex business product or service supported with mammoth analysis, statistics, logic, facts, and figures, will still require the triggering of an individual's personal emotions. Now, one of the bullet points or highlights of your seminar listed in your brochure is, I quote, the most significant behavioral trend of the 90s that sales professionals must deal with. What is it? We are a nation of cynics. Richard Nixon taught us to a man that our elected president will look us square in the eye and lie to us through his teeth. At the time, it was a big shock to our entire society. Now the idea that our elected officials lie, cheat, and steal is accepted as the norm. It's so accepted that Chicago cheerfully re-elects Dan Rostenkowski, that our country elects Bill Clinton, a man who's never seen a lie he won't try. We've learned we can't trust our religious leaders either, from the fall of Jim and Tammy and Jimmy to the Catholic Church's shameful pattern of protecting child molesters, there's disillusionment everywhere. How about big corporations? Well, Exxon trying to cover up the extent of the Valdez damage, airlines going bankrupt, giants like IBM, once the equivalent of guaranteed job security for life, laying off thousands and eliminating thousands of jobs. As I'm recording this, we have very big companies like MetLife caught up in the kind of consumer fraud actions that historically have been the province of fly-by-night operators. Heck, we've even had a network news program rigged demonstrations of trucks blowing up. Banks, the savings and loan scandals changed the way we look at our banking system. Heroes. I recorded this just a week or so after O.J. Simpson was driving up and down the L.A. freeway with a gun in his lap. Now, what makes you think anybody should or will believe in you? This is not a place to let your ego get in your way. It's just not enough to insist that you are a trustworthy, trusted, persuasive person. Don't invest your self-esteem in being believed by prospects. Smart strategy assumes that every statement, every fact, every promise, every benefit, every assertion will at best be questioned, at worst be disbelieved. Then equip yourself with appropriate weaponry. I am about to reveal to you and attempt to sell you on the single, most important, most powerful selling weapon that exists, period. I know that's a big claim, but I believe it wholeheartedly. If I could have only one selling weapon, this would be the one I'd choose. If I had to sell mute but could have this weapon, I could still sell. Here it is. Proof. If you will substantiate your sales presentation as thoroughly as the top prosecutors, and top criminal defense attorneys try to substantiate their cases and arguments, you will be on your way to assembling enough proof. In selling, we prove our cases with facts and figures, physical demonstrations, pictures, testimonials, references, and guarantees. And of these, testimonials can be the most powerful. Which do you depend on more, logic or emotion? 
presuming you're selling to human beings, you depend much more on emotion. There are five emotions, five E factors that control buying behavior and most other behavior. Number one, love. Number two, pride. Number three, fear. Number four, guilt. And number five, greed. Not necessarily in that order. The more of these you can hit with your selling case, the better. Let's take a product from TV. The Where There's a Will, There's an A videos designed to help kids get better grades where the sales made to the parent. Number one, if you really care, love. Number two, picture yourself congratulating your son or daughter on a straight A report card, finally having a report card you can brag about, pride. Number three, tougher and tougher for kids to even get into a good college. Grades are more important than ever, fear. Number four, it's hard to work, to compete in the business world, have time for your spouse, and still have all the time you'd like to give to your son. Guilt. And number five, let's talk about grades and scholarships. Greed. You see, I can hit all five E factors. Make no mistake about this. Logic is what the buyer uses to defend his decision after he's made it. E factors are what makes buying decisions and actions happen. A lot of people, particularly in business-to-business -business marketing or selling sophisticated products or services, want to argue this. They want to be above it. They want to be fact presenters. They're wrong. The exceptional salesperson always weaves the E-factors all through his presentations. If you read the account in Napoleon Hill's writings of how Andrew Carnegie was finally sold on retiring and on selling and merging his companies, you'll see all the E-factors hard at work, even though Carnegie, America's first billionaire, was as hard-nosed and tough-minded and heartless a businessman as any. Called the canny Scott by many, he was renowned for his shrewd judgment, tough negotiation, and stubbornness. At the time, this transaction was the largest financial deal in American history, and without Charlie Schwab's savvy use of the E-factors, it never would have happened. I suggest you find and read the story. John Scully, former CEO at Apple, got sold, actually conned by a con man, into a very embarrassing and costly business deal you may have recently read about. Scully certainly should have known better. He should have done more investigation and analysis. But the con man used the E-factors in such a powerful way, Scully virtually ignored logic. In this case, the axiom pride goeth before the fall. While Scully was desperately eager for a way to rebound and recreate his reputation as a biz whiz after leaving Apple, his pride was in control. And he was afraid that opportunities might not come his way, so fear was in control. These two stories, decades apart, but both about shrewd, sophisticated business leaders, simply demonstrate that no one is immune to e-factor selling that everybody is very susceptible to E-factor selling and that the E-factors haven't changed and won't change. If a sales professional is going to acquire new skills or say uh, a single set of new skills, what would have the biggest positive impact on his earning power? I kind of grew up in the advertising business and had some understanding of advertising before I began selling for a living. Then I discovered the specific differences of direct response advertising. And I'd have to say that my ability to use advertising instead of prospecting, although that's a bit of an oversimplification, makes all the difference in the world. The greatest single waste of a salesperson's time and energy 
is in the area of prospecting. When you streamline, shortcut, and simplify that, you really have impact. Now, here we are doing a program about selling, but you're talking again about advertising. Why do you keep coming back to advertising? There's a very good reason. In fact, I'm going to describe to you and read one of the most productive ads of a subscribers of mine, Rory Fats, because these days, advertising, marketing, and selling are often and should be thoroughly integrated. You see, separating these functions really doesn't make much sense. The attraction of prospects and the way those prospects are attracted is a control factor in how effectively they can be sold and how they should be sold. If I can enhance the quantity and quality of the leads you get, I can automatically improve your closing effectiveness without changing anything you do in closing. If I can provide those prospects without you doing prospecting, I can switch more of your time over to selling and automatically increase your income. So your understanding of an ad like this is of paramount importance. So this is a one-column, full-page advertorial that's an ad made to look like an article in the publication in which it runs. Now here's the copy. Businessman infuriates local restaurant owners by giving away hundreds of free dinners. Vancouver is known for its wide number and variety of restaurants. As a result, we have seen many types of restaurant promotions to grab our attention. However, Rory Fat, president of Simple Salmon Incorporated, takes the cake. He's giving away free dinners, hundreds of them with no end in sight. What's even more astonishing is that he hasn't put any restrictions on who can get one, only that you must live in Kitsilano, False Creek, Fairview Slopes, or the West End. These are his target markets. He has limited it to one per household. What Simple Salmon does is provide home delivery of fresh frozen meals. Just throw them in the microwave or in the oven, for that matter. And his selection is endless, from his chicken cannelloni marinara, meatloaf extravaganza, teriyaki chicken with rice and vegetables, chicken with broccoli and rice, Thai chicken with rice, many low-fat items, vegetarian, pizza, Mexican, the list goes on and on. The convenience, no added preservatives or MSG, no wastage, generous portions, are more than worth the 5 to $6 cost, and best of all, they taste delicious. This probably accounts for the fact the phone is ringing off the hook. Our biggest problem right now is trying to keep up with demand. Quote, Although he has only been in business about two years, he's just recently gotten aggressive with his marketing. When asked about his controversial promotion, he responded, The restaurant owners think I'm crazy. He later stated that although his marketing is angering local restaurant owners, his products and services are so good it is paying off. Quote, what we're offering our customers is an alternative to ordering pizza, Chinese, going to a restaurant, or grocery shopping with all the related mess and hassle. Our customers demand convenience with a capital C. We deliver at their convenience, take checks, visa, or cash, and most importantly, fat adds with a grin, quote, all orders after the free dinner come with a free gourmet cookie. Our customers are extremely busy people. For them, we get rid of that, my fridge is empty, what am I going to eat tonight, feeling, end quote. If this concept interests you and you live in Kitsilano, Fairview Slopes, West End, or False Creek, you can get a free dinner coupon and a mouth-watering brochure by calling 732-1321. Or if you prefer, 
They have a 24-hour free recorded message with more information at 877-4701. Don't be surprised if you get voicemail. They're very busy. Leave a message and you'll receive the free dinner coupon in the mail. Now let me make this very important point. This is a pure direct response ad. It is not attempting to do anything but get the correct response. And that's the only kind of advertising you ought to run. Now, you're a critic of traditional advertising, aren't you? Well, comedian Fred Allen said that advertising is 85% confusion and 15% commission. In his book, Getting It Right the Second Time, Michael Gershman quotes a study demonstrating that no more than 12% of all advertising is remembered and ever acted upon. I often test audiences. I'll challenge them to name the correct battery advertised by the little pink bunny with the drum. And about 20%, sometimes more, name the wrong battery. Now, currently, there are funny TV commercials airing for a beer where cows surf and the lady host of a cooking show combines with tag team wrestling. There's full body contact golf. And all these commercials are very funny. But my own quickie survey of 20 people failed to produce even one who could name the brand of beer being advertised. Considering all this, how could anyone not be a critic of traditional advertising? To quote the critic, it stinks. And all the ad agency folks can get together and give each other awards all they like, and that won't change a thing. It still stinks. So I'm certainly not advocating that salespeople start using traditional advertising. Instead, I suggest to you this test for a valuable ad. It delivers a clear, simple, single message that prompts a direct, immediate response so it is 100% measurable. If an ad fails that test, which 90% of all business, industrial, and consumer advertising does, don't run it. Now, if a salesman in any field will take the time to learn how to do this kind of pure direct response advertising, he will revolutionize his career. Why? Because he will have qualified, interested, responsive prospects to sell to without doing prospecting. Now, earlier you referred to uh, positioning instead of prospecting. What is positioning? I mean positioning yourself so that good, qualified prospects find out about you, or at least have the feeling of discovering you, and seek you out to obtain your expert assistance in solving their problems. Sales resistance goes up or down, depending on whether they find and come to you, or you find and go to them. So I mean you have to position yourself somewhere you're likely to be found. Examples? Well, the financial advisor or the chiropractor or the real estate agent or the psychic, it doesn't matter, who gets his or her call-in show on talk radio uses that to plug her book, available at local libraries and bookstores, and to plug her monthly seminars. Now, that's a very simple answer, but it's formulaic. A CEO sees my article about infomercials in Target magazine and reads it. At the end, it offers him my complete book on the subject. He calls and gets it reads that book. Here's what's happened. First, he feels like he has found me. Second, because my article was in that magazine and because I've written a book, I have expert status. Now when he calls me, he never thinks in terms of me selling him anything. His sales resistance is very low. But if I get on the phone and cold call 20 CEOs and get to him, even though he has an interest in my service, and I pitch him on the phone to get the appointment, 
and then I go in on that sales call, his sales resistance is very high. Personally, I don't want to be in a situation where there's a lot of sales resistance. Now, in your book on no BS sales success, you conclude by um, by talking about takeaway selling. What's that? Well, wasn't it Groucho who said, "I don't be part of any. I don't want to be part of any club that would have me as a member." <laughs> a takeaway selling is what you get the opportunity to do if your positioning is correct and you have enough lead flow. Then you get to make it a bit difficult to get to you and to get to do business with you. There's a rough equation of value to ease or difficulty. Which do you perceive is better? A hair salon where you have to make an appointment a week in advance and you have a stylist who takes care of you every time, or a walk-in, no-appointment haircutter store? Well, as someone with a lot of insider experience with that industry, I'll tell you that your perception may not be reality, but that doesn't matter. Which do you perceive as cheaper? As I said earlier, nobody goes to see the wise man at the bottom of the mountain. So takeaway selling embodies some exclusivity, some difficulty of getting you, and some urgency. Tell me more about takeaway selling. In my No BS Sales book, I use the example of a very successful real estate agent with an unusual listing presentation. And if prospects balk at her clothes, she says something like this. Well, different approaches are right for different people. You may be more comfortable with a more conventional agent, somebody who will sit here day after day at open houses, be around the office whenever you call, and not be so selective about taking clients. Then she opens her address book and says, I can recommend several good agents of that kind. Now that's pretty tough, but she has set it up right from the very beginning, which I fully describe in the book, so invariably the prospect backpedals. No, wait a minute, we want you. See, takeaway selling is positioning from start to finish. It basically says, I'm picky about who I accept as a client. Can you qualify? I didn't invent this. In major cities like New York and L.A., there are apartment buildings you can't go rent an apartment in. To be allowed to rent or buy there, you have to be sponsored by an existing tenant. You have to pass a vote of all the tenants. You have to jump through hoops just to be permitted to buy. In Hollywood, you can't just roll into William Morris and say, hey, here I am, represent me. You have to prove to them that you are a viable, desirable client. Many doctors, hairstylists, therapists, and attorneys have what we call waiting list practices. Why shouldn't you carry this air of exclusivity over to your business? And the point is, if you have enough deal flow, enough new prospects being magnetically attracted to you, you will have to say no to some. And the truer that position becomes, the more ardently you'll be pursued. Takeaway selling is very powerful psychologically. Everybody wants the tickets they can't get into the club that's most exclusive to bypass the peon line at the city's most popular nightclub. We all want in. Stepping back from a prospect draws him to you. Stepping toward him drives him away. Try it as a little physical experiment. In conversation, suddenly move away from the other person and watch as he moves towards you. But step closer to him, and he'll step back. The same thing happens psychologically. So I want to be positioned from the very beginning with credibility and celebrity as someone clients eagerly pursue, not as someone who pursues new clients. Well, but what about the person not in that uh, position at all? You know, he desperately needs new clients. 
Well, these cassettes were built for salespeople already doing well, but seeking breakthroughs to truly exceptional success. But I'll give you one basic example as an answer to your question. While you were out of the office briefly, a really hot prospect called, somebody whose name you recognize and who you would love to get an appointment with. When do you call the person back? Immediately? Later that day? The next day? I'm here to tell you that even if you have no one else to call, nowhere to go, and nothing to do, you do not dare return that call immediately. You just cannot appear overeager or too easily accessible. You might think, hey, I'll demonstrate how responsive I am, how good I am at providing service. Well, that may apply after the sale, but not before. And if that sounds gimmicky, I'm sorry, but I've just told you the truth. The prospect's respect for you diminishes if you are too easy to get to. Personally, I'm to the point I don't worry about this much. I will, for example, return a call quickly to a new prospect if I can, but I rarely can. My positioning has become my position, so most return calls from non-clients wait three days to a week or get delegated at least to schedule a phone appointment. Now, you just said that your positioning became your position. Now, I think that's important, isn't it? Well, uh, sure. First, you decide on, define, stake out, and courageously proclaim a position. Then you've got to behave in the way a person in that position behaves. You also have to work like crazy to validate the position. And before you know it, the positioning you've created for marketing purposes becomes your actual position. If you read Reese Trout, now Reese is a subscriber of mine, read their book on positioning, The Battle for Your Mind, and their 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing, and you gain a deeper understanding of positioning as strategy. Then if you read psychological authors like Dr. Maxwell Maltz, Psycho-Cybernetics, Jim Newman, Release Your Breaks, and prosperity consciousness authors like Catherine Ponder and Stuart Weil, you see that positioning is also a powerful application of self-fulfilling prophecy. Then if you really study the works of Napoleon Hill and their meaning, you'll discover what I call the dominant thought principle, the secret Dr. Hill refers to at the beginning of Think and Grow Rich. Link all three of those together, and you'll know what to do and how to do it for positioning to quickly become actual position. Unfortunately, I think society, academia, even corporate America, insists on conditioning people that they have to be positioned by somebody else, by some third party. Someone else has to recognize and appoint you. You do certain things, then you get recognized, get an award, a promotion, a degree, a title. Status follows achievement. But if you follow that pattern in the entrepreneurial environment, you'll starve. In real business life, the opposite. That's the way it works. The super successful person decides on his status first, then backs it up with achievement. Let's take an insurance agent who wants to specialize in dealing with CEOs of family-owned businesses. Conditioning says he goes to a bunch of classes and seminars, takes courses, and somehow gets somebody to certify him as such an expert, or more correctly, has prepared to be such an expert. Then he goes and labors for years, working with one, then two, then three such clients, and gradually, ever so slowly, that community takes notice of him, and finally, Maybe some association or media proclaims him an expert in his field. You should live so long. In real-world selling, here's what the smart agent does. He prepares himself as best he can, then he proclaims himself, 
Minnesota specialist in advising CEOs of family-owned businesses. Then he gets busy doing things that go with and support that position. He writes a book, uh, gives a lecture, a seminar. He starts sending out news releases to the media to get interviewed as this expert. And he narrows all of his marketing to support this position. And then he is that positioning. What is the fastest way a sales pro can improve his income? Well, how would you like to know? The number one secret to at least doubling your income from selling almost overnight. It's not a very difficult or mystical secret. Here's all you have to do. You get two eye of newt, one black garter snake, a bottle of olive oil, a book of chance. I'm kidding. What you do is you double the amount of time you actually legitimately spend selling. How do you do that? Well, one way is to delegate whatever non-selling activities you can. One of the most successful real estate agents I know, not a broker, an agent, has three assistants working for him, a personal assistant getting clothes in and out of the dry cleaners, cars washed, paperwork ferried around town, gifts bought, restaurant and travel reservations made, a sales assistant picking up prospects, returning clients' phone calls, and filling out contracts, and an office assistant keeping records, placing ads, and doing mailings. Another way is to systemize and automate your prospecting with magnetic marketing. Systems save time and free up key people like you. Also, get militantly tough about valuing, protecting, and investing your time. If you want to inject some discipline into a campaign to lose weight, keep a diary and truthfully write down every single thing you eat, nibble on, or drink that has fat or calories in it every day, day by day. You'll eat less. Keep a log and an account for every minute of your time. That's a mirror that will change behavior. If you can double your true selling time, I guarantee you'll more than double your income. What is the most um, important time management uh, tip you can give to the sales professional? Bill Brooks and I co-authored one book on time management. He has also written his own and recorded a cassette program for Nightingale Conant on time management specifically for salespeople. Here's the big secret that he and I agree on. The objective or purpose of time management should be to increase the amount of time spent on planned accomplishments. Bill further notes that an important aspect of time management is identifying what not to do. I find that success is proportionate to your ability to give more time to those things you do and enjoy best and less time to those things you do poorly and dislike doing. Now, if you assemble those pieces, here's what you get. Escaping the least productive in favor of the most productive by plan. And the key word in all of this is plan. Do you have a true plan for selling for the month, the week, the day? But while all that's important, it may not be the most important thing I can tell you about time. I think everybody must budget, block, set aside, and invest some time every week in thinking. Stopping doing and just thinking. You can't afford to keep running so fast and so hard that a year from now, you are trying to do better only by running a bit faster and a bit harder. That's the rat on the treadmill method. You do max out, and you will burn out if your aorta doesn't blow out. So let me say this again. You cannot afford to keep running so fast and so hard that a year from now, you're trying to do better only by running a bit faster and a bit harder. Instead, between now and then, you need to discover or invent a really new, different, non-time-intensive way to sell more. And that has to come from time invested in thinking. How does a salesperson waste time? Well, that list is 
almost endless. But a big issue is talking to people who cannot say yes or no. Only time invested with decision makers counts. It's that simple. Of course, the best way to get to decision makers is to get decision makers to come to you. In business-to-business selling, lead generation ads in trade journals, business magazines, airline magazines, Wall Street Journal, association newsletters can be used to get top decision makers to raise their hands, sometimes two-stage direct mail. The first wave of letters into a company is just to get a response from the right person. Then the second set of letters is directed at that person to set up the appointment under ideal conditions. By far, the best way to get a decision maker's favorable attention is with a referral from or an endorsed mailing from another decision maker of comparable status in the same or related industry or in the same community. What else can you tell us about time? Every top sales pro has activities to take care of that have very short-term relevance and impact. Today, tomorrow, next week. And most salespeople only deal with these. But top pros allocate a certain amount of current time to set up success months from now. And they allocate current time to matters that will yield success years from now. Short-term, medium-term, and long-term development simultaneously. If you do less than this, you really mortgage away your future for day-to-day results. To be exceptionally successful in selling, you must get past the point of going to bed tonight with no real certainty of where tomorrow's sale may come from. It's a version of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You have to get past, or above if you prefer, using 100% of your resources to meet survival needs. In general, that's food, shelter, defense. In selling, today's sales and tomorrow's appointments. If that's still where you are, you really need to go through all these cassettes several times, specifically focused on extracting the ideas that will move you beyond survival behavior. I'll add, by the way, that some people get so good at survival behavior, they cannot step up to success behavior. What about selling big-ticket items? Well, that's mostly what I do personally these days. My initial consulting day's fee is $3,850, most projects more, plus royalties. A typical all-inclusive budget for production of a video brochure or TV infomercial will run from $70,000 to twice that. My copywriting fees for ads or sales letter campaigns start at $5,000, and my base speaking fee is $3,850. To somebody selling private planes or month-long luxury cruises, these may not be big ticket, but compared to a great many product and service price points, they are. Anyway, I think the first point about big ticket selling is that selling is selling, people are people, and the fundamentals don't change. But then there are some specifics. For example, you have to determine whether yours is going to be a negotiated sale or a non-negotiated sale. What's the difference? Well, is your price negotiable? In most cases, mine is not. Recently, after considerable discussion, I quoted a man a fee for his project of $24,000. He came back two days later with a slightly altered description of the tasks involved and offered $5,000. He's been a negotiator in commercial real estate all his life and probably views himself as a shrewd, tough negotiator. Unfortunately, I wasn't making a negotiated sale. And my reply was, I did not offer a proposal. I quoted a fee. I try to position myself as the lawyer or the brain surgeon, a professional with whom you do not negotiate fees. If you are going to make a negotiated sale, though, then you need to integrate negotiation strategies with selling strategies. 
if price is going to be negotiated, then the way you present price becomes extremely important. Personally, I like to discount it once voluntarily to try and cut off or minimize additional price negotiation. I've used verbiage something like this. Now, the regular off-the-street rate for this is X dollars, but our long-term repeat clients frankly only have to pay Y dollars. I think you and I are going to be working together for some time to come, so I'm going to give you the Y rate right now. That creates a deduction of B dollars from the price of A dollars. Your net is only C dollars. Now, what's the most important technique for making the negotiated sale? The willingness not to make the sale. Just about any negotiating expert will tell you that the person most willing to walk away without a deal has the most power. Unfortunately, in a seller prospect situation, rather than two equals negotiating a deal, the seller is replaceable. So the buyer is almost always the one most willing to walk away, and you can't truthfully trump that. But you can be okay with walking away. Two keys. One, you have to have enough flow of good prospects coming to you that you honestly feel, hey, there's another bus coming just around the corner. Two, you have to know that a client or customer obtained through too much compromise is bound to become a problem later. At some point, you have to say to yourself, let my competitor have them. They deserve each other. You cannot have to or want to close the sale at any price under any terms. If that's your actual or mental and emotional position, you're soon going to be walking around with bloody stumps. My preference is to negotiate to try and make the deal, but not to negotiate to beat competition. I know I'm starting to sound redundant, but this brings us back to positioning. If your prospect has come to you predisposed to do business with you, then negotiation really becomes teamwork. You both want the deal to happen. He has certain limitations. You have certain minimums and requirements. Negotiation is finding a way to satisfy each other. That is a much more manageable kind of negotiated sale than one where you are a competitive bidder or competitive presenter, and the prospect can play one against the other, you can't tell if you're being told the truth about the others, and you are obviously easily replaceable. That's a very unpleasant selling environment. And if that's the kind of environment you work in now, were I you, my priority would be to change it one of three ways. Change the way you attract prospects. Change the entire game from apples to apples to apples to oranges. Or three, find a new company to sell for in a different industry. Now, what else is unique about big-ticket selling? The quality of the relationship probably matters more. Although I, I'd rather not plant an obstacle in anybody's mind, we're not, in most cases, talking here about first-call closes. Instead, the sales pro and prospect are probably going to have several conversations, several meetings, maybe a lunch, dinner, golf course meeting, in-office meetings, so rapport skills take on increased importance. I'm told that the average length of time it takes to sell a jet to a company is two and a half years. During that time, that salesperson is undoubtedly whining and dining and meeting with that decision maker or decision makers a number of times. Still, I'd again emphasize that all the fundamentals are always at play. And if you go back and look at the E-factors, for example, the sale of that jet is going to involve every one of them. Now, what's the biggest sale you've ever made? Oh, I've made and make a number of them in the $25,000 fee range, $100,000 total budget range. 
back when I was selling books, I wrote the largest new order in the department store category in the history of the company. For a client, I once sold Holiday Inns on putting up over a million dollars of research and development money, and I once did a $990,000 reverse sale, sold a board of directors on giving me control of a million-dollar corporation for 10 bucks. But the dollar amounts are not all that relevant when taken out of context. The decision of a small business owner who has never spent more than $10,000 a month on advertising to pony up $50,000 for an infomercial is tougher for him and a tougher sale than getting a million dollars out of a company the size of Holiday Inns. In every case, I've carefully built my case so that I could argue such an overwhelming value to the other party that they just couldn't sensibly say no. I don't know that every salesperson can set up such an argument, but that's always been my approach, and it's the kind of approach I'd recommend first. Now, what's the biggest sale ever made to you? Uh, some years ago, we bought a $45,000 computer system from Xerox to be shared by my company and another company. And in retrospect, I can tell you this was not a win-win deal. We got nailed. And it happened solely because it was Xerox. At the time, neither I or the other company's president knew squat about computers. We both knew exactly what we wanted in terms of end results, so we reasoned, who better to trust, who better to tell our requirements to and let them prescribe than Xerox? So we were set up by the credibility factor. I'm sad to report that the reps really took advantage of us. They sold us $45,000 worth of stuff when $10,000 would have done everything we wanted and done it better. And later, we negotiated our way out of all the leases with threat of a suit. The fiasco still cost us a lot of dough. In retrospect, I'll tell you, these were very smooth, very skilled, big-ticket salespeople lacking only one quality, integrity. I don't know how they made out personally, but since then, I've never let Xerox have another nickel. Not only won't I buy a Xerox copier, I won't make a copy on a piece of Xerox equipment. And God knows how many people I've told this story to and how many deals I've killed for Xerox. And incidentally, I do not believe in making the big sale by lying. You may sneak away with a commission check, but over time, your actions will hurt your clients and your company, and it will all wind its way back to nailing you. What are your feelings about making by-name comparisons uh, to your competitors? I would caution against selling by degrading competitors. If it's overdone, it's the equivalent of saying, hey, everybody's lousy, but we're not quite as lousy as they are, and that's not a very exciting position to stake out. I think you sell primarily from your own strengths with a carefully constructed package of benefits, value, proof, and service that does beat the competition. And again, given my druthers, I'll be selling in a vacuum anyway. On the other hand, there are times when comparison to competitors is inevitable and must be done, sometimes point by point. I'll tell you about a little trick for those situations. Let the competitor win somewhere a little. You know, Al, to be honest, they do a slightly better job of inventory backup than we do. They probably same-day ship 90% of the time. We same-day ship only about 50% of the time. The rest within the week. But if you'll just plan ahead a little, we can work together without a hitch. And then there's all these other benefits. I think you gain believability by such damaging admission. I do favor head-to-head comparisons when you can actually demonstrate superiority. I mean, when it's visual, dramatic, and inarguable. As a pup, I spent some time in the Amway business, and, God, we had some really terrific demonstrations. 
their laundry compound versus Tide, stir each in its own glass of water. Tide stayed gray with all sorts of ugly gunk separating and floating around. That's all the filler that's in there, which does wear out your clothes prematurely. There's sawdust and shredded paper. Amway stuff disappeared. The water was clear, and the end of the demo was to take a hefty drink from the Amway jar and offer the customer a drink of her Tide. It was a killer. Another, the safety of furniture polishes. Most store-bought aerosol furniture polishes, propellants, are highly flammable. Spray just a little bit in a jar lid, toss in a match, and whoosh, you've got a bonfire. But then you could use ours as a fire extinguisher to put theirs out. Which do you want coating all the wood in your house? I started a house fire doing that demo once, by the way. Now, if I had equally dramatic demos for a given product, be it a $100 item or a $1,000,000 item, I'd certainly use them. But if you're going to do it, be certain the demo is perfect. The best trump of competition, though, is positioning. Price, no object. Everybody'd rather deal with the best, the one everybody else prefers dealing with. So if you can create that kind of aura, that kind of visibility, and be price competitive, you're going to win every time. That strategy integrates marketing, advertising, PR, and sales. And rarely can the salesperson make it happen all by himself. On the flip side, the salesperson himself can make himself the issue, the difference. You get me can be a powerful argument. I watched a guy selling very sophisticated software system installations, and part of his pitch was, you get my office's 24-hour-a-day support number. Call at 2 o'clock in the morning, and the person who answers is going to be ready and able to help you with any glitch. But if that doesn't satisfy you, then you can call my 24-hour-a-day roving 800 number. I'll either answer you or call you back within 30 minutes. And if for some weird reason I don't, you get my personal pager number for emergencies. I can run, but I can't hide. I don't even take the pager off when I sleep. You got me. Well, that's pretty powerful. Actually, I'll tell you what it says. It says this guy's darn sure of the quality of his installations and the skills of his support people, or he wouldn't dare make himself this accessible. When you're trying to set yourself apart from a whole bunch of competitors, what do you do? I start by looking at those e-factors we talked about. In the infomercial industry, I use fear a lot. I say, you know, there are lots and lots of people who can produce beautiful videos. They've come over from the entertainment industry, movies, regular video production, and ad agencies. But can they sell anything? Most do not know enough about direct sales and direct response advertising to fill a thimble. So if you're not careful, you'll wind up with an award-winning documentary. And here's my advice. No matter who you use, what production team you assemble, please make sure somebody's in charge who knows the fundamentals of making a sale by direct response. Now, by saying all that, that way, I haven't slammed any particular competitor, and I haven't boastfully sold myself, but I've planted a great big fat seed of doubt. I've played on fear, and I happen to have given good advice. Years ago, I was at a bar with a client and another guy, all three of us single. The other guy got his sights set on a drop-dead gorgeous woman across the room and announced his intentions of going over and getting a date with her. My client, a masterful salesman, went to work on him. Man, you don't want to do that. Women that beautiful, that Hollywood, well, they're impossible to please. And they're not at all eager to please you. And you always have to worry about who's hitting on them or who makes more money than you do or who dresses better than you do or who drives a fancier car than you do. You'll never have a moment's peace of mind. 
Then when the guy slunk off to the restroom to recover, my client zoomed over there and got her phone number. He planted doubt and fear in that guy's mind and let it do its job. Without ever knocking your competition, you can plant seeds of doubt and fear that will then bloom and blossom all on their own. It doesn't take much for a negative thought to multiply. There's a lot to be said for being the safe choice. You also want to find a way to highlight competition's weakness against a strength you have. If you're David against Goliath, it's, you know, the Goliath company's a great company, a really formidable competitor. The only thing is they've gotten so big in the last few years and seem to be giving their attention to really big clients that some smaller companies just don't get equal attention. You know, there's a trade-off for a company like yours in having a relationship with a giant like that. On the other hand, to an organization like ours, you're frankly a major account, and we can grow together, and you can count on being treated as a VIP, and so on. But if you're Goliath against the David, you have to flip all that around. You know, the David company's a great company. I hear they really provide great service, and we do see them as a formidable competitor. It's just unfortunate that as small as they are, they just can't have all the backup inventory, the extra service tech standing by to respond within an hour, those kinds of advantages that may be important to you. There's a trade-off to doing business with the little guy. You may get a bit more personal attention, but, and so on. We have a car dealer here about 70 miles outside of Phoenix. He advertises in Phoenix a lot and basically says, look, admittedly, we're way the hell out here in nowhere land, and you're going to have to drive for an hour or so just to get to us. But because we're out here in nowhere land, our overhead's much lower than all those fancy pants dealers with the big edifices in the middle of the city. It costs less to do business out here and to live out here. Frankly, we need every sale we can get. So we'll pass every penny of our savings on to you. Drive a little, save a lot. See, they flip their disadvantage into their competitive advantage, and that's smart. What about the time uh, cycle of the big-ticket sale? Well, like we talked about before, I mean, two and a half years to sell a jet. In a lot of business and industrial settings, there is no single decision-maker. You have to sell through one to others, get consensus, and so on. All that extends the time between first contact and done deal, and you're very vulnerable that entire time. So it just makes good sense to creatively look at every possible way you might forcibly shorten the time lapse. Now, don't sit there and say that's just the way it is in this business. With that kind of thinking, you'd be lighting your office with a bigger candle. Nothing ever has to stay as it is. You can introduce some new dynamic and change the rules. I work with a client that gets business by bid for very complicated industrial equipment renovation jobs. A few years ago, he stopped doing free bids. He charges $1,000 to do the estimate. That worked okay, but his other nagging annoyance was six months or longer to get a yes, no, or otherwise after bidding. We did a very simple thing. You get the $1,000 rebated only if you proceed with a contract within 29 days of bid. Before, less than 10% closed that fast. Now, nearly 30% closed that quickly. Let's say I'm in some kind of big-ticket selling and I want to double my income this year over last year. What do I do? Well, we just named one thing, so let's start there and kind of go backwards. You reduce the time lapse between first contact and done deal. Close sales faster. Next, if you're doing negotiated sales, employ every creative idea possible to keep the prices or fees on the high side, not the low side so you achieve a higher dollar average per sale. Next, 
create a position and a package of benefits that makes you the preferred choice. Last, stop prospecting in the conventional sense and set up magnetic marketing systems that furnish you with prospects predisposed to doing business with you. Spend your time meeting with people as a trusted advisor, not as a salesman. Combine all that and you get a higher dollar amount per sale, so even if you made the same number of sales this year as last, your dollar total will be higher. You complete each sales process in a shorter period of time, so some that would be in play at year's end but not completed until the following year have to fall into the current year, more sales this year than last. You are consistently investing your time in higher probability prospects, so your closing average should improve, also equaling more sales this year than last. If each of the three accounts for a one-third improvement, you double. How about real estate or insurance, uh, relatively big ticket sales to consumers rather than to purchasing agents and executives? Now, what's most important there? Agreement on the parameters of what they want and what will satisfy them before ever prescribing product. If you're going to approach these selling situations like a peddler with a big bag of assorted products, hey, here, look at this. No? Well, look at this. No? Well, how about this? You're going to waste mountains of time. Instead, you have to ask smart, diagnostic questions, then get definitive agreement on what they need and want. Okay, it has to have three bedrooms, two baths, a large kitchen, and be close to a shopping mall. Those are the four most important characteristics. Then four more optional but preferred characteristics are, and the price range is X to Y and no more than Y. So if I took you to a home that had all four of the musts and, say, two of the four options and could be bought for X and a half, on a 1 to 10 scale, what are the odds you'd buy it without more shopping around? Okay, Bob and Mary, you've got three different insurance policies with two different agents, an IRA account, and a savings account. Let's back up one step. What are the three most important objectives you have for saving and investing? One, two, and three. Which is most important? Next most important. Great. Now let me first show you why what you are doing doesn't match up well with these objectives. Next, let's describe the ideal savings or investment tool. You would have this as feature one, this as feature two, this as feature three. Now we have a list of six must-have features plus a few options. If I showed you an investment device that met all six of the musts and most of the options, on a 1 to 10, what are the odds you'll close all the other accounts, cancel the policies, and put everything into this plan? Now, I've made those examples faster and more simplistic than they would be in real dialogue, but you get the idea. I want pre-agreement on what it takes to score. I sure don't want to move the ball all the way down the field, get it over the goal line, and then have the ref say, hey, back four plays ago, you had a guy run crosswise. He can't do that. See, rules first, play second. It's simple. Now, you keep using terms from worlds other than selling, um, diagnose, uh, prescribe. For example, why? The best way to achieve exceptional results in selling is not to have to do any selling at all. The prospect comes to you predisposed to do business with you, thanks to your front-end advertising and marketing. Then you serve as a diagnostic consultant and trusted advisor. The sale happens. It's not made as in forced. It happens as in natural, as in the only logical, natural, possible outcome. 
Let's talk about closing the sale, getting the ball across the goal line to lapse into sports parlance. My speaking colleague, Zig Ziglar, says, Timid salesmen have skinny kids. I am unceasingly amazed at the sales professionals who turn soft when it comes time to lay out the offer and ask for the order. About a week ago, I was speaking at a two-day conference the evening of the first day. The first day speaker, a very well-respected, celebrated expert in his field, and a pretty good speaker, had to an audience of about 60 business owners sold only one of his business cassette packages. One. That night, I sold 32 sets of mine, just shy of $8,000. The first speaker of the next day sold nothing. How could that be? The conference sponsor identified the reason instantly. To me, he said, you're the only one who directed them to buy and to buy now. This important principle applies to person-to-person selling, group presentations, even salesmanship in print, direct response advertising. You have to methodically move to the delivery of a straightforward, clear, directive close. Now, this applies to one-on-one selling in any environment. Salespeople convince themselves they have to make repeat calls before closing a sale. They have to go slow, and many may seem perfectly satisfied with the I'll think it over conclusion of a meeting. And you may very well be one of these salespeople eager to argue that in your industry, you just cannot close. You have to be very patient. Take your time. Go back and see the buyer several times and let him set the pace. Well, go ahead and cling to that belief if you like, but I'm here to tell you it's costing you money. As a consultant, a sales trainer, and a temporary salesman, I've gone into industries where closing, especially first call closing, is just not done and done it. When W. Clement Stone insisted that the sale is contingent on the attitude of the salesperson, not the attitude of the prospect, I think he hit more than one nail squarely on the head, and this is one of them. Your attitude toward closing sales is the controlling factor in how soon, how easily, and how successfully you close sales. This even applies to trade show selling. During the one and only year I worked for a company other than my own, book publishing company, is the first trade show I'd ever worked was for them at the annual Chicago Gift Show at McCormick Place. I was told just to glad hand and get catalogs out. You can't sell much at shows, and so on. Stubbornly, to the annoyance of some of my new colleagues, I wrote orders right then and there for more business than all of them added together. I opened brand new accounts, and I got opening orders right there on the trade show floor. Why? First, I ignored all the conventional wisdom. Second, I structured a desirable offer and presented it persuasively. Three, I asked for orders. To again quote, in this case paraphrase Zig, he says, too many salespeople aren't salespeople at all. They're professional visitors. I think most salespeople are wimps when it comes to asking for the order, and selling is no place for wimps. In recent years, unfortunately in my opinion, this selling wimpiness has even been encouraged by a number of experts, authors, speakers, sales trainers, psychologists, expounding on topics like relationship selling, non-manipulative selling, the soft sell, and an almost endless stream of psychobabble. Many of these psychobabblers haven't been out there really selling for years. Some have never been out there. They have lots of touchy-feely ideas and theories, but when applied in real selling situations, it all falls apart like a cheap suit. 
Many companies and sales organizations have been too quick to welcome these ideas. And if you carefully analyze these organizations, you'll see that their sales cycle, the time that elapses between first contact and first closed sale, has lengthened. That means that the corporation's cost of sales and cost of acquiring a customer has increased or worsened, and the salesperson's time cost of selling has also worsened. American business has been oddly eager to accept new fads. Remember the mad rush to Japanese management? Quality circles? Well, we could build a long list. I say beware of fads. When I study a top sales performer today, I definitely see more similarities with top sales pros of 20 years ago than with the psychological fads of the moment. Some 20 years ago, a grizzled vet said to me, here's all you need to know about selling, kid. Here's the ABCs of selling. Always be closing. These days, when I structure a sales presentation, I am closing from the beginning, closing throughout, and trying to set up the automatic close. I am literally always closing. I think you have to be very clear about why you're there, why you're making a presentation, and that ought to be to make a sale. Oh, sure, you want to make a friend, you want to build a relationship, you want to accomplish a whole host of secondary objectives, but I insist that above all else and before most things, you want to make the sale. I think too many people go out on calls without a very specific, predetermined objective, without a definition of what will constitute success in that particular situation. Personally, I detest think-it-overs. Because I so highly value my time, I would much rather have a definite no if I can't get a definite yes than an indefinite maybe. With the no, I know where I stand, and I can move on. With a maybe, I do not know where I stand. And I can, and many salespeople do, con myself into believing I'm in better shape than I really am. So I don't work as hard, because I'm convinced I'll be cashing in my think-it-overs any day now. If you find a salesperson with a big, fat bank of pending deals, of think-it-overs, you will never find an exceptional achiever. You may be able to make yourself feel good with a maybe, but no matter how many maybes you've got, your bank balance doesn't change. Well, and incidentally, only a very small percentage of think-it-overs ever convert. I've discovered that most of them move to think-it-over Iowa, never to be seen again. In think-it-over Iowa, you can actually see cobweb-covered skeletons clutching menus, sitting in diners and restaurants. They perished, wasted away while trying to decide what to order. Every traffic light has only one color, yellow. It is my preference to stay out of think-it-over Iowa and instead to seek out and sell to people who can and will act decisively. And it is my conviction that exceptional achievers in selling also avoid spending time in think-it-over Iowa. They literally blow those indecisive prospects off and move on. You see, there is a time cost in selling. To achieve peak results, you just have to understand, appreciate, and take into consideration that cost. Now, obviously, different sales professionals have different time cost factors, and differences in sizes of industries or territories, numbers of prospects, these things will have impact on how tough you can be. But generally speaking, time invested in nursing, stalling, stumbling, recalitrant think-it-overs along is not nearly as productive as time spent rushing on to the next prospect. Now, here's the loop. Closing has a great deal to do with being in front of a prospect who can be closed and is ready to be closed, and that has everything to do with how the appointment with the prospect is obtained in the first place. 
positioning, not prospecting. Magnetic attraction, not pushy pursuit. You can't separate the close from the entire process. When you do, it does become awkward, difficult, and anxiety-inducing for sales pro and prospect alike. Instead, the close should be natural. How it starts will largely control how it ends. Can you give me an actual example of salespeople, as you put it, wimping out? Oh, absolutely. Uh, several years ago, uh, to give you one, preparing a seminar for a client of mine in the retirement community business with retirement parks throughout Florida, I went around to a dozen of their locations with a nice little old lady on my arm, she impersonating my aunt, me impersonating a potential buyer, and we took the tour with the sales representatives. We played along. We gave buying signals. I tried to make it as easy as possible for the reps to close us. Now, this company even has a $100 refundable deposit program. It has the last resort, the step-down for the reps, for, for the customer to reserve a specific lot for 15 days to determine whether or not they want to go farther. Only one of all these reps made any attempt to close a sale. None used the $100 program. Now, they all did a great job on the tour. Then they went wimpy when we got back to the office. They asked softball questions like, how did you like everything? Or, well, what do you think? And they accepted my very first stall without question. And if they describe themselves to anybody as sales professionals, they lie. They're tour guides. It turned out that most of the reps weren't even aware of how wimpy they were until I called them on it in the seminar. That's why you have to monitor yourself very carefully. Are you accepting stalls and excuses too easily? Are you afraid to push for a definite yes or no? Are you really closing? Well, what do you do to teach most salespeople about closing techniques? I maintain there's only one closing technique any salesperson needs to know. It's the best. So why rely on anything other than the best? If you were holding my loved ones hostage and told me I had to close my next sale or you kill them, this is the closing strategy I'd use. If I could only use one closing strategy for the rest of my life, this is the one I'd choose. It's the yes or yes close, sometimes called the alternative choice close or the AB option close. Whatever you call it, it simply means that you avoid the entire issue of yes or no altogether. I cut my teeth in selling on this close. In prospecting, would Tuesday morning or Thursday morning work better for you? In selling to consumers, would you prefer to pay by check or credit card? In selling to store owners, which free gift would you prefer with your due rack, A or B? Nobody's ever shown me a good reason to switch to a different closing strategy. What about slumps? In the past year, I've had the pleasure of appearing as a speaker in several cities with Lou Holtz, the coach at Notre Dame. In my unhumble opinion, one of the very best, most intense, focused, exciting coaches in all of college football. If you only see Lou on the sidelines on TV, you might not know he has a terrific sense of humor, and he is a very funny speaker. About his status at Notre Dame, Lou says, I have a lifetime contract. That means that I can't be fired during the third quarter if we're ahead and moving the ball. I think it was Jim Volvano who wrote a book titled, They Gave Me a Lifetime Contract, Then Pronounced Me Legally Dead. His sales pros were in the same boat. We're only as good and secure as our last victory. We can't afford, and our superiors won't tolerate slumps for very long. In my case, every time I step to the stage to speak and to sell, i got to get great results. 
I cannot have an off day. I can't have a headache, a stomach ache, an emotional problem. I've got a score. This is what makes slumps so deadly. At even the hint of a slump, the typical sales pro experiences stark, desperate terror. Unchecked, it'll magnify, it takes on a life of its own, it takes control. The salesperson's fear of failure becomes real. The trick is to cut this thing off quick, fast, immediately. Never let it grow and gain power. Personally, I take a whole array of steps. I get out of the whole environment temporarily, go see an action movie, watch a game, go to the zoo, get a massage. I relax for a day. I look at the situation where I have not gotten the results I think I should have, try to learn something from it, and compare it to lots of other successful situations. I review my overall performance, recent successes, and reassure myself that my methods can be trusted. I go back through my sales presentation piece by piece, step by step, practice it perfectly all over again, and then I try and set myself up for a success. It's very important to have a set of fundamentals, a system, a million-dollar sales presentation that is ingrained, second nature to you, and that you have a lot of confidence in. It's a mistake to start fooling around, changing this, that, and the other thing. A golfer will tell you if he has a slump and starts doing that. You know, one guy says, hey, try changing your grip this way. And another guy says, well, maybe if you bent your knees differently. Before long, he's lost all the basics of his game. It is completely lost. If you have a tested, proven presentation, you got to stick with it. Most salespeople can prevent slumps by making sure that they have a steady stream of well-qualified prospects. That's what my magnetic marketing systems provide and why it is so important to learn how to replace old-fashioned prospecting with magnetic marketing. Is there any one single uh, mistake that hurts salespeople more than any other? The biggest mistake all marketers and salespeople insist on making over and over again is talking in terms other than benefits. They want to talk about their company. A guy asked me, wouldn't you be interested in knowing why John Hancock is the number one rated company in these funds? Well, no, I said I wouldn't. I could care less. I mean, hey, I'm sure that's great for John Hancock. They got a plaque or a statue or something. But to me, it's one big fat so what? Unless you somehow translate that into a compelling benefit for me. And you need to critically analyze every statement you make. Is this promising an exciting, meaningful benefit? It's old, but you can think of everybody tuned to one radio station and one radio station only, WII-FM. What's in it for me? And if you aren't answering that question with every word, every phrase, every breath, you better have a darn good reason why. Paul Meyer of Success Motivation Institute tells the story of the, com of the commuter railroads officials disturbed because passengers wouldn't close the doors and the winter weather made everybody uncomfortable. So they put up a bunch of signs. For the comfort of the other passengers, please close the doors. And they made no difference. Finally, one smart guy changed all the signs to read, for your comfort, close the doors. Now the doors got closed. Now you've got to totally buy that message and think about it every time you write a letter or an ad or give a sales presentation. What other mistakes do salespeople make over and over again? Well, here's a little checklist of don'ts. Uh, don't sell if you're not sold. If you're not 110% sold on the truth and veracity of your promises, the superiority of your product, 
the value of the proposition of the buyer, do yourself and your company a favor and look elsewhere for work. Get yourself into a situation where you passionately believe in what you are representing. Don't prejudge. Qualify, but once you are face-to-face or on the phone with a prospect or in front of a group, don't let yourself judge them negatively, regardless of how they look, talk, or behave. Just do your very best presentation and let it stand on its own two legs. I spoke last year, last guy on a program, in a terrible facility, a big metal exhibition building at a fairgrounds, no air conditioning, a hot day, the faint smell of livestock in the air. People had been sitting on hardwood benches all day. The sound was bad. They couldn't see my visuals. A few people actually hollered and heckled. Many were noisily leaving while I spoke. Now, I could have let my performance slip, assuming that I was doomed anyway. But that's what you can't do. I gave it my very best presentation. I stuck with it, and I had terrific sales that day. Years ago at a seminar, I had a guy sit in the front row, put his feet up on the table in front of him, and read the newspaper during my entire presentation. Then he bought a $500 package. And I could tell you dozens more. So once you're there, give even the unlikeliest prospect your best shot. Don't sell your way out of a sale. Some people just never learn when to shut up. Asking questions and taking the prospect's buying temperature frequently is pretty important. Listening is critically important. Many people will be ready to buy before you've given your entire presentation. When they're ready, wrap it up. On the other hand, don't quit too easily. Few prospects fall in line without trying out a few objections, stalls, and excuses. Let's talk about objections. What if I say, that's too expensive? Well, price resistance is often a mask for, I can't afford it. And when that's the case, it usually means you're not qualifying prospects enough before getting in front of them. But it also means you lose if you handle it as price resistance. Now, if the prospect is honestly objecting to your price, one of several things, or all of them, may be true. The prospect did not seek you out and invite you in. Or you didn't include a sufficiently convincing value build in your presentation, or you didn't prove your case beyond a shadow of a doubt. What do you mean by value build? Well, the prevention of price resistance is setting up a scenario where the perceived value is so far in excess of the cost that your price becomes an irresistible bargain. I call it selling money at a discount. If I offered you a $10 bill for a dollar, and you had the bill authenticated, and you had no doubts about the validity of the offer. Everything was on the up and up. Would you buy a $10 bill for a dollar? Well, certainly. And if you could buy as many as you wanted, only within the next three hours, how many dollars could you come up with? You've got to admit that's a pretty easy sale to make. Doesn't require much product knowledge. Sure doesn't require neuro-linguistics or 26 different closes. So what you want to do is build the value of what you are offering way, way up. You can do that with apples to oranges comparisons. For years, I've sold audio cassettes by talking about the tuition price you'd pay if you attended the seminar on which the audio cassette is based. Heck, everybody knows an audio cassette is about 10 bucks. In my industry, Nightingale Conant set that standard, stupidly in my opinion, with uniform pricing for most of their products and massive advertising. So six tapes, 60 bucks. But six seminars, well, even at a very low public seminar price of, say, $49 a seminar, that's $300 for six, plus the cost of travel and time away from your business. 
Then you can do added value. To stick with my example, let's say that I add a literature critique coupon to the package, a service we usually charge $100 or $200 for free. Now we're at $400 or $500. Now when I drop to, say, $99, it's a bargain. But in reality, it's priced at double the Nightingale-Conant norm. You can also do that, and you get this and this and this Ginzu knife thing. If this is done well, it wipes out a whole lot of price resistance. Cadillac's using it now in TV ads. For $499, you might get a couple days' enjoyment at this resort. For $499, you might get from here to there one time in an airplane. But for $499 a month, you can have 30 days of enjoyment and go from here to there as often as you like. What if you have a product with, uh, without any competitive advantages over the others, and the competition is fierce and willing to cut prices? What do you do? Well, first of all, live by cheapest price, die by cheapest price. There will always be somebody willing to beat your lowest price. Quite frankly, if I had to sell by price, I'd quit. It's a no-win strategy. And in every industry where everybody jumps on this, everybody winds up losing. Look at the airlines. They've literally driven each other into bankruptcy with their stupid price wars. The fast food industry. First one started the cheap 59-cent and 99-cent value meals. Now they've all got them. hasn't helped anybody. It's just decreased everybody's average sale amount. And this is stupid. If you can't find a better sales story than we're cheapest, I feel sorry for you. About price wars, by the way, in the old days when there were barbers, two barbers across the street from each other, one puts up a sign, $5 haircuts. The other guy puts up a sign, $3 haircuts. The barber back across the street puts up a sign, $1 haircuts. Finally, the last sign, we fixed dollar haircuts, 5 bucks. You know the adage, I'd rather justify my price now then apologize for quality forever. Me too. Second, if you haven't got any real competitive advantages, please go get some. And if you really can't find or create competitive advantage in your core product or service, then change the entire game, the rules of the game, so there's no level playing field, no way to accurately compare you to a competitor. Last year I had a guy in one of my seminars who owned a commercial cleaning company. On contract, the crews come into your offices at night, empty the wastebaskets, vacuum dust, and so on. The guy's getting killed by low-priced competitors. So we talked about reinventing his business. Now the contract he sells includes all that ordinary cleaning and maintenance, plus monthly expert cleaning of all the typewriter, word processor, and computer keyboards and screens, fax machines, and copy machines, and quarterly cleaning of the ventilation system filters and of ceiling tiles, and a perk program that gives all the client companies' employees special discounts at local car wash, a carpet cleaning company for their homes, a dry cleaners, and so on, with new supplies of coupons every month. See, he's changed the game. Now, what about a business where price is negotiated and you've got a tough customer? What do you do? Fred Herman uh, is, to my knowledge, the only sales trainer ever to go on the Johnny Carson show, billed as America's greatest salesman. Carson handed him an ashtray and said, sell it to me. Fred held it up and fondled it a little bit, looked at it, and muttered to himself about fine-quality glass. And then he asked Johnny, you know, if you were to buy this ashtray, what would you pay for it? Carson named a price, and Fred said, sold. I know several top performers in the automobile business who take that approach. They get the customer to give them a number. If they can write the deal at that number, like Fred, they say sold. If they can't, they now have a piece of paper with the adjusted sticker price all the way at the top, the number the customer gave them all the way at the bottom. 
then they go through an exercise of making concessions and adding value, then asking the customer to make a little concession so the two ends can meet in the middle. All right. How about I have to talk it over with? Then you name it. My husband, wife, boss, committee, whatever. Well, let's separate the business situation from the consumer situation. If you get the, I have to discuss it with my boss, and so on, stall, if you've done a decent job of qualifying, and if you're an invited guest, that'll be a lie about half the time. He does not have to talk it over with anybody. He does have the authority. He's just lying. Because when you're not thoroughly sold, any excuse is as good as any other excuse. Guy goes next door and asks to borrow a saw. His neighbor says, no, nah, I can't lend you my saw. You see, it's a magical saw, and it was given to me by Thor, who appeared in the forest before me, and he bequeathed this saw to me and to me alone and made me take a blood oath never to lend it to anybody else. The borrower's insulted. So that's the stupidest thing I ever heard. If you don't want to lend me the saw, why don't you tell me it was lost or rusty or you needed it today? Something simple and believable. Because, as neighbor says, when a man doesn't want to loan out his saw, one story's as good as the other. So you've got to probe for the real objection. After I speak, I inevitably have a guy, order form in hand, who says, I want your materials, but I didn't bring a company check. I have to get my boss's okay, and he's not here. Can I take this form with me and send it in? No, I say. If you want to buy later, you'll have to call in, get a catalog, and buy at the regular price of $538. You can only get the $268 price and bonuses right now. Nine out of ten then say, well, I'll use my personal credit card and get reimbursed later. But if it's real, then you've got a challenge. You probably got trapped meeting with the wrong guy, and that's something you want to fix in the future. For now, you can offer to come back for a meeting with everybody, set up a teleconference, somehow stay in the game directly. If you can't get that done, you hopefully have great sales tools, video brochures, for example, so you're in control of the communication even if you're not there physically. And you still want to have some reason for urgency and a mutually agreed time and method for follow-up. Now, in consumer selling, if you're selling anything substantial with one spouse present and one spouse absent, you're wasting your time. And this is a positioning issue from the beginning. If they're eager to meet with you, you're in control, and it'll be on your terms. Now, if you want to get tough, you'll say something like, you have all the facts here in front of you, and I'm here now. What could you possibly ask this other person that he or she would know that you can't ask me and we can't discuss right now? And I've done that kind of selling. But if you're going to get into give and take over stalls and objections, which I'd much rather preempt and prevent than do, but if you are going to do it, then you ought to drain all the objections and box in the prospect before responding to any. The guy says, I can't afford it right now. Instead of dealing with that, nod and write down, afford it, and say, what else? He says, well, I'm not sure it'll work in my business. Nod, write down, will it work for me, and say, what else? Two or ten, eventually the prospect will say, I guess that's it. So if I understand it, if we could resolve these six concerns of yours, then you'd be ready to join. Is that correct? If he agrees, you should have him. Then you go back, deal with each concern, cross it off as you go. Well, isn't that awfully manipulative, though? You bet it is. And persuasion is manipulation. Anybody who claims they're going to sell non-manipulatively is going to go hungry. 
Every choice you make as a sales pro is or should be made with its effect on the prospect in mind, and that's manipulation. I experimented enough in a year of speaking to determine that my sales were much higher if I wore a conservative two-piece suit than if I wore a sports jacket and slacks. I always wear a suit. That's manipulative. Manipulation is not good or bad, ethical or unethical, in and of itself. Just as, contrary to some opinion, a gun is neither good or bad in and of itself. Intent and actual usage determine good or bad outcomes. If I use manipulation to sell you a service that saves your company $50,000 this year, makes you a hero with your boss, and gets you a promotion, that's good. If I use the identical manipulation to sell you a new roof for your leaky factory at a too cheap price, we then use substandard materials, the whole thing falls apart in six months, and you get fired over it, that's bad. But very, very few people confidently make buying decisions purely through their own initiative. If you think you can be a fact presenter and let people make up their own minds, you will not be in sales very long. Now, do you believe in canned responses to objections? I prefer prevention. The automatic close happens seamlessly without the interruption of objections. That's how top, top performers make most of their sales. And that's what you want to aspire to and work toward. The need to handle objections is the giveaway that you haven't mastered the prior steps in the sales process or that you're working with resistant prospects to start with. But setting that aside and saying, yes, we're going to get and have to deal with objections, then I will always try and teach draining the objections and then canned responses. You know, in the entertainment business, there are a very, very, very few individuals who can come out on stage wholly unprepared, wing it, ad-lib, interact with the audience, and be successful. Robin Williams, Jonathan Winters, we can count them on two hands tops. But there are a great many superstars who do just fine with scripts. Superstars of selling have carefully scripted their presentations, memorized those scripts, and practiced those scripts. Aren't canned responses restrictive? The opposite. They provide freedom. When you are closing and responding to objections, two basic things are going on simultaneously. You have to be reading the other person, and you have to be lining up what you are about to say next. If you are 90% free to figuring out what you're going to say next, you can do a better job of concentrating on what the prospect is saying, verbally and non-verbally, deciphering, translating, extracting meaning. I'm not suggesting you be a little robot, though. You use the planned, canned, ingrained responses as your solid-as-a-rock foundation. What about uh, buyer's remorse? Well, it's not a sale until it sticks. In direct marketing, we have a tool called a stick letter that goes out after a product shipment to deal with buyer's remorse. You'll find a sample of one toward the very end of my book, The Ultimate Sales Letter. So a sales pro knows that his job has not ended with the conversion of prospect to buyer, it has to extend to prospect to buyer to secure happy customer. At the very least, you want to use a congratulations and boy did you make a smart decision letter. Way back at my first selling job, I was smart enough to do this. All day long, I would sell store owners on putting in racks of books, each representing a fairly significant financial commitment. And quite frankly, I used hard sell, slam bam, tough closing techniques. Then every night in my motel, I'd take the long-form letter I had copies of, really a sales letter, jot some handwritten extra notes on it to personalize it, 
and put it, the guy's receipt, his rack assortment diagram, and my card in an envelope, hand address the envelope, and mail it the very next day. Compared to the other reps, I had very few fallouts. My friend Gary Halbert insists that how you follow up immediately after the customer's first purchase is one of the most important tasks in the entire sales and marketing arena. His stick letters are usually dollar bill letters. As you can see, I've attached a nice, crisp dollar bill to this thank you letter, and I've done that for three important reasons, and so on. I'm always amazed and dismayed at how rare it is for me as a customer to get so much as a simple thank you note after I buy something. Last year, I'm told that a shoe department salesman at a Nordstrom's department store earned over $200,000. Without even doing a lick of investigation, I can promise you that that guy is nothing like the Al Bundy shoe salesman we see on TV. I can guarantee you he follows up every sale with every customer immediately and thoroughly. You see, it shouldn't be just dealing with buyer's remorse. It should go beyond that into the whole issue of TCV, total customer value, the relationship. There are very few businesses anymore where the slam-bang-next approach to selling makes any sense. It just costs too much in money, time, and energy to get a new customer. Let's summarize. The 19 secrets for exceptional results in selling are... Okay, here goes. Number one, being there by invitation as a welcome guest, respected expert, and trusted advisor. Number two, integration of advertising, marketing, and sales with emphasis on lead generation advertising and magnetic marketing. Number three, master direct response advertising just as you master salesmanship. Number four, use the positive power of negative preparation. Develop presentations and techniques that prevent stalls and objections and have quality answers prepared for potential stalls and objections. Thorough preparation frees you to concentrate on reading the other person rather than worrying about what you will say next. Number five, mental and emotional control so you gain the power of total concentration. Only you know if you are experiencing 100% concentration on the sale in the moment as you sell. If you are not, you need to determine why you lose concentration and work at improving in this area. Number six, personal influence. I've yet to talk about the specifics of personal influence, but in general, oddly I suppose, relationships matter as much as results in satisfying clients and customers, so human relations skills matter as much as anything else in selling. Number seven, proof. The mightiest weapon a sales professional can wield is an overwhelming quantity and quality of proof. Substantiate every promise, every claim, prove your case. Number eight, understanding and utilizing as many of the E factors as possible, as frequently as possible. Number nine, find opportunities to create and use apples to oranges comparisons, reinvent your business, and otherwise highlight your strengths against your competition's corresponding weaknesses. Number 10, diagnosis, detection, customization, then prescription. Only the lowest levels of the selling profession involve force-fitting one standard solution to every customer's situation. People prefer that which is designed specifically for them. Number 11, discipline yourself to talk constantly and only in benefit language. If you quantified and measured it, what percentage of your conversation would be customer-oriented versus salesperson or company-oriented? 
what percentage would be pure benefit? Number 12, have a carefully prepared and practiced million-dollar sales presentation that you have confidence in and rely on. Pros do not wing it. Amateurs wing it. Number 13, hate settling for think-it-overs. Celebrate the quick, decisive, definite no just as you do a yes. It is the maybes that waste your time, disguise your true effectiveness, and sap your energy. Number 14, be a courageous, assumptive closer. Remember your ABCs. Always be closing. If what you're doing isn't moving you and the prospect toward the close, is there really a good reason to do it at all? Number 15, use the yes or yes alternate close. Avoid offering up a yes-no decision. Number 16, look for every opportunity to increase the time invested in selling and to decrease the time spent doing anything and everything else and measure your progress. Every percentage point swing from non-selling to pure selling activity may represent tens of thousands of dollars of added income to you. Number 17, invest your time wisely so that you address today's short-term responsibilities and opportunities, but also take care to create the future you desire. Number 18, pay as much attention to the customer after the sale as you do in making the sale. This will not only prevent buyer's remorse, it will create lasting positive relationships, repeat sales, and referrals. Number 19, do everything with sincere enthusiasm. If it's not important enough to do enthusiastically, maybe you shouldn't be doing it at all. Remember, prospects hear your words and see how you look consciously, but they subconsciously sense your true attitudes. Attitudes communicate. This is the end of side one. On this cassette, we've asked Dan to talk you through the highlights of the million-dollar sales presentation he currently uses for his own products while speaking. I start with a promise statement. If you own a business or sell for a living, suck it up and stay in your seats for another 55 minutes. I promise you'll leave with enough practical one, two, three action strategies to at least double your income in the next 90 days. And at the very end of our time together, I'll give you one complete action strategy you'll be able to take with you and use and see income from it in just 15 days. All right. Now explain the purpose of all that. Well, first of all, consider the setting. I'm often either the speaker right before the lunch break or at the very end of the day, and people are tempted to leave, and people are leaving. So I want to do something to get them to stay and pay attention. But that only seems unique to my situation. Even in one-on-one -on -one selling, the prospect is tempted to leave and does leave mentally. You don't see him get up and physically walk out of the room, but his mind certainly wanders. So just as an ad needs an attention-commanding headline, a sales presentation needs an attention-commanding opening sentence. Second, there are strong, specific benefits promised. This opening statement is like an ad for my presentation, and the heart and soul of a good ad is a great promise. This is a very important technique. If you don't grab them by the throat and compel them to pay attention from the very beginning, when are you going to get their attention? Okay, what's next? Next, I go through about three minutes of credibility building, which I won't bore listeners with here who already know me. But basically, I'm saying here are three or four really good, solid reasons for paying close attention to me. Here's proof I can help you. Then I start to create agreement with a problem. There are any number of proven, reliable sales presentation formulas. One of my favorites is problem-solution. I believe that making a sale gets easier if you create agreement, mutual pain, 
mutual understanding and emotional angst about a problem, then be the white knight with the solution. After all, if there's no problem, why buy a solution? So in this case, I talk about how people feel about marketing and prospecting. For business owners, I talk about being advertising victims. For salespeople, I talk about cold call grunt work. I got the phrase mutual pain. Now, what does that mean? Well, this is tricky. In selling, I want my prospect to know that I really do understand his situation, that I've sat where he's sitting, struggled with what he's struggling with. But I also need to establish the advisor position, essentially a superior position. Look, I've shared your pain, but I've found a way out. That's the point. So in this case, I paint the picture of being an advertising victim. Only a victim could paint. Taking the big black checkbook out of the center desk drawer, sitting across the desk with some media salesperson, not knowing if he's telling the truth, whether you're making a good decision or a bad decision, how you'll measure the results, but writing out a check anyway. A shared painful experience. And so we tend to trust somebody who has clearly experienced what we experience, and we tend to distrust those who haven't. But then I make a big global-sized promise of the solution. In this presentation, I tell a quick funny story about me with me as the goat that summarizes the problems and delivers a big promise of a solution. After that, I say that the solution consists of three parts, three big steps, and we're going to look at all three of them. And because getting people to remember things with pictures is helpful, I say we're putting together a three-legged stool. That sets me up so later I can call on that picture repeatedly. Now we've got one of the three legs screwed onto the stool. Now we've got two of the legs, and so on. Now, there are a lot of little nuances in just that chunk of your presentation. I jotted down story, summary, a problem, promise, a solution, and picture. Right. Well, story, well, people perk up when you tell a story. We were conditioned as kids that this is a good thing. Hey, please tell me a story. Jesus taught in parables, stories. The summary, I just want to keep reestablishing problem-solution, problem-solution, problem-solution. Now, you go on with uh, the first of these three parts, right? Yes, but I think it's pretty important to emphasize that I've very carefully built a foundation here. I've made and reinforced very appealing promises, given them credibility, established a sense of rapport with the audience. I've set up the framework or the skeleton for the entire presentation so it'll be easy for the audience to see each step completed for them to know where we are. Now I'll go ahead with the three parts. My presentation has three. There's no magic there. It could be two. It could be five. It just happens to have three. In each case, so in part one, I describe a feature, really a tool they ought to have. I tell a personal story that illustrates it, and I give a couple case history examples. In other words, I deliver the same basic piece of information about five times. I call this technique internal repetition. It's important because information heard and seen only once has virtually no impact but information heard repeatedly has substantial impact. We know that from education, but it is just as true with persuasion. When I close that section, I go back to my illustration. Now we have one of three legs screwed onto the three-legged stool. I go through the same thing with the second one and with the third, and then I tell a story that goes all the way back and ties one, two, and three together. Now that's a lot of repetition, isn't it? Yes, and it's necessary. The trick is to repeat without being redundant to tell the same thing differently X number of times. By this point, I'm hoping they are convinced that I know and understand their situations, that I know what I'm talking about, 
and that the little system I just described to them could work for them. I want them to understand it, but still not be able to do it. Then I problem solution all over again. The new problem is the inability to use my solution after just one quick introduction to it, bridging the gap between ideas and implementation. Then I whip out the solution solution, my product. Solution solution? Yeah, think of it this way. For every problem, need, or desire, there is a generic solution and a brand name solution. A hot summer, kids home from school driving you crazy, hard to relax. Well, the generic solution is your own backyard swimming pool. You have to buy into the generic answer before you'll choose between a Shasta pool or a Bluebird pool. That's solution, solution. In my presentation, I'm first of all selling the idea of using direct marketing and direct response advertising in place of traditional advertising and prospecting. I have to get that mental shift made first. Now your commercial starts. That's right. The core sales presentation, the sales presentation within the presentation. In direct response advertising, it would be the offer. I use strategies we've talked about earlier in these cassettes. I use apples to oranges comparison. I value build. I price drop. I start by talking about five seminars that teach everything I touched on and that attending those five would cost X. Then I say that we've condensed the seminars to tapes so you get them for the lesser Y amount. That's an apples to oranges comparison. Then I add value with premiums and ultimately arrive at a value of Z. Finally, a price drop to about half of Z, then my guarantee, more proof, and a close. Now I caught two things, proof and what happened to the yes or yes close? I use a lot of proof. Three different times during the presentation I introduced testimonials. I also use a statistic of 96% satisfaction in connection with my guarantee. And I do use the yes or yes. I actually offer two products, a low-priced and a high-priced, and then a yes or yes close. And uh, you call this your million-dollar sales presentation. Exactly why? Well, last year I sold nearly a million dollars worth of my products. This year I'll do more than a million from the platform with just this presentation. Over almost a three-year period, this has been refined, little tweaks here and there. But the building blocks, the components are decades, maybe centuries old. I didn't get the tape to seminar tuition value comparison from anybody else. To the best of my knowledge, I invented it in 1981. But the idea of switching apples to oranges comparison is something I'd heard about a number of times. You know, this is all very formulaic with time-honored selling formulas like ADA, attention, interest, desire, action, and problem sol a solution. So when someone decides to create uh, their own million-dollar sales presentation, what do they do? They learn and adhere to these proven formulas. You can't just wander around or put things in any order you choose. You start with choosing one of the classic sales formulas for your master outline. Next, decide on the generic proposition you want to sell. What general idea do you want the prospect to agree with? Like, our diets are inadequate, the foods we get at supermarkets and restaurants are overprocessed, stored and nutritionally deficient, so for optimum health, nutritional supplementation is necessary. And failure to get proper supplementation can lead to disease and premature aging. That's a generic idea the prospect has to agree with before you can sell them any kind of vitamins, food supplements, a juicer machine, or a kit for growing herbs in the backyard. Here's another one. Back injuries in the workplace can be prevented through education and ergonomics less expensively than they can be treated and rehabbed. 
failure to prevent them can only lead to increased workers' comp insurance costs, lower productivity, and lower worker morale. That's a generic fact you need a prospect to agree on before you can sell his company safety equipment and apparel like back brace belts, videotape courses on proper lifting, new kinds of ergonomically correct furniture, or consulting services. So what's the idea you need to sell? With that in mind, you go backwards and create a presentation that successfully sells that idea. It will have features and benefits, facts, all kinds of proof, a powerful opening, and a summary close. Once that's built, you can build the second attached presentation for your particular brand of solution. And unless there's a strong reason for doing otherwise, I put a yes or yes close on the very end of it, package A or package B. Of course, in a million-dollar presentation, every word choice, every turn of a phrase, every benefit, every little thing is important. Now, do you practice this? I'm told that Yul Brenner performed the lead in The King and I on Broadway and off-Broadway more times than any other actor. Yet most afternoons before the next performance, Yul Brenner was in his room practicing the pro has his million-dollar presentation so ingrained you can wake him up in the middle of the night, start him any place in it, and have him finish. He still practices. Who else practices? Pro football players practice the same pass routes, same offensive blocking schemes, same defensive rushing schemes over and over and over again. Pro basketball players stand at the foul line and practice. However, don't misunderstand. Practice does not make perfect. Only perfect practice makes perfect. I practice my presentation as perfectly as possible at least twice before every actual presentation. And still after three years, on any given day, I forget a phrase or a sentence or a voice inflection that should be there and that makes a contribution to the sale and kick myself when I realize it. So I say practice. There are people who can wing every sales presentation, run on raw talent and accumulated intuition without a planned and practiced presentation. Quite a few salespeople are good enough to sell that way. I am too. But very few can get exceptional results that way. Now, what about the argument against canned uh, presentations? I think it's a foolish argument. Well, in one-on-one, -on -one, rather than group selling, I think the experienced, savvy, and talented pro can spontaneously deviate from the planned and practiced presentation. Based on his read of the individual prospect, he can use his wisdom based on experience to drop this, add that, spend more time here, less time there. He certainly has to respond to questions and objections, so he needs to be flexible. You can't be a robot in one-on-one -on -one selling. But flexibility is one thing. A completely undisciplined approach is another. A pro will always have two presentations, sometimes three presentations. The presentation he planned to give, the presentation he actually gave, and the more perfect presentation he wished he gave. But the amateur always has two, the one he gave and the one he wished he gave. Think of it this way. You may have to make as-you-go changes in your game plan to adjust to changing game conditions, unexpected actions by the other team, whatever. Yet no pro coach would ever go into a game without a game plan. I'd add, if you deliver a canned presentation like a canned presentation, that's disastrous. If you're going to recite it to them in a monotone, who needs you? We'll send a letter. You need to build your own million-dollar canned sales presentation, then make it uniquely your own with style and enthusiasm. Now, how important is enthusiasm, delivery? It's everything. Uh, as you know, dogs can't decipher words at all. They operate entirely based on the tone. You can say, 
bad dog, and the dog will cower. But you can say, bad dog, and his tail will thump, and he'll be happy and excited. Above all else, selling is a similar transference of feelings. Tone of voice, voice inflections, and body language make or break sales. Imagine going into a team's locker room. They're down by three touchdowns at halftime, and you deliver the famous Newt Rockney speech, read in a dull monotone, looking sheepishly at the ground, shoulders slumped over. If you're going to pull that speech off, you better put everything you've got into it. By the way, my friend Coach Bill Foster told me a great story about the late Jim Valvano. Early in his coaching career, Valvano was coaching some small college basketball team. I don't remember where. And for his first big game, he decided to use the great Vince Lombardi's three things speech. You know, three things. Men, number one, God, number two, your country, and number three, the Green Bay Packers. And so Valvano listened to that speech over and over and over again, memorized it, and then went in and told those kids at that small college playing basketball, there's three things, God, country, and the Green Bay Packers. It is important to internalize your own speech. Frank Becker wrote one of the best books on selling ever, How I Raised Myself from Failure to Success in Selling, and it's all about enthusiasm. How does a person become enthusiastic? Well, not by marching around the table singing the company song or some equally silly superficial behavior. I think enthusiasm is based on what I call the big four, self-image, self-esteem, self-confidence, and self-discipline. Self-image is what you see when you look in the mirror. Do you see yourself as a winner, as a top pro, as a trusted advisor, as someone deserving of trust, respect, and superior earnings? Self-esteem is how you feel about yourself and your selling role. Is everything congruent? Are you presenting good, valuable, ethical propositions you can be proud of? Are you deserving of success? See, you can run a guy through all the pep rallies you want and tell him, be enthusiastic. But if he's lugging around a lot of guilt for screwing around on his wife and neglecting his kids, is selling an inferior product, and sees himself as a pest to others, he ain't going to stay enthusiastic very long. Three, self-confidence. That's where the planned, practiced, million-dollar sales presentation fits a tool he has real confidence in. He knows that with that presentation and his skill, he can sell with the best of them. And self-discipline, the ability to get off his duff out the door and into action, the discipline necessary to practice, and to stick with the million-dollar sales presentation. Now, given these four things, being enthusiastic is natural. I also want to ask you about personal influence. I mean, what you call the seven factors in dynamic personal influence. What is dynamic personal influence, and how do I get it? Personal influence is the ability to move people on the strength of your personality alone. John F. Kennedy and Ronald Reagan are the U.S. presidents of our time who clearly possessed this. Iacocca could be put in this category. If you build your own list and look at these people for their commonalities, I think you'll wind up agreeing with my list of seven key factors. Number one is celebrity. Being perceived by those you deal with most as having celebrity status is an immense advantage. Number two is credibility. Being recognized by those you deal with most as someone who is respected and trusted. And number three, expertise. Legitimate, extensive, superior knowledge about your subject. When you combine those three elements, you have a very solid foundation for personal influence. You have the advantage of being paid attention to and accepted. Number four is mastery of the E-factors. Personal influence is entirely based on mastery of your own emotions and appeal to others' emotions. Number five is a good sense of humor. This year, I've appeared as a speaker on several programs with former President Bush. 
And I'm pleased to tell you that he has and exhibits a healthy sense of humor about having lost the election and his situation. George and Barbara Bush's new home in Houston is their 15th home, which he says Barbara chalks up to his not being able to hold a job. And he notes that people he easily beat on the golf course when he was president seem to have suddenly dramatically improved their games now that he is no longer in the White House. It's my opinion that had President Bush exhibited this good humor while in the White House and while campaigning, it would have made a positive difference in the public's willingness to forgive his errors and entrust him with another term. Taking yourself and your circumstances too seriously is an obstacle to relationships. Number six is independence. Personal influence comes more easily to the individual who does not need constant reassurance of his competence and importance from others. The salesperson who needs to be liked, who has a Willie Lohman complex, is prevented from having a dynamic personality. He's a marshmallow and a chameleon. Most people with great personal influence are willing to offend some in order to completely win over others. And number seven is a bias for action. The decisive individual is admired, respected, and followed. How does a person get these factors working for them? Awareness is the starting point. Which do I have and exhibit? Which are absent? What are my real strengths and weaknesses in these seven areas? Then you pick the characteristic you want to develop or strengthen and go to work. Read about people who represent that characteristic. Find how-to materials that help. Be very conscious of your behavior in this area. Every one of these things begins with conscious awareness and effort and only gradually becomes subconscious automatic behavior. Okay, finally give me the fast start toward exceptional results. What should we do to get the greatest possible value from these audio cassettes? View this as a cafeteria. Go back through the tapes and isolate the one thing of paramount overriding importance to you and your career. You have to build the bridge from the ideas and information I've provided to the implementation only you can provide. Pick something, one thing. Set up a 30-day plan of daily actions to get that idea thoroughly integrated into your selling activity. Get it solidly in place. Then pick something else. And I like to break each thing down backwards in 30 daily steps. If on the 30th day from now, this is how things will be, what has to happen on the 29th day, the 28th day, the 27th day, the 15th day, the 10th day, tomorrow? But the most important thing is to avoid setting all this aside to return to later when you have more time. You won't be back. Right now, today, you have to isolate the specific improvement you want to work on first and get to work. You've been listening to one of our gold members-only podcasts. Make sure you upgrade and become a Diamond member and get access to the Diamond members-only podcast as well. On top of that, you also get access to the whole enchilada with all of Dan's courses and so much more. So make sure you upgrade to Diamond now by going to diamondupgrade.com.